Nearly 30 years ago, John Hammond's dream of bringing the prehistoric past back to life became a reality thanks to Engine's dedicated team of scientists and their trademark state-of-the-art cloning technologies. Jurassic Park was originally set to open its doors to visitors back in 1993 on the luxurious island of Isla Nublar. However, due to technical difficulties, its opening was delayed indefinitely. Now, we would like to cordially invite you to a wonderful world of a time long forgotten and revisit the magic and wonder of the Jurassic Park franchise right here on the latest season of Podcasters Assemble. Welcome to Jurassic Podcast. Uh, 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 pod- Podcasters Assemble. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, assemble. Hey, this is Frost from the Super Switch Club. Yo, this is Corey with The World is My Burrito. Hey, this is Chris from Comic Zombie and Epic Fails of History. My name is Dugasaurus Rex from the podcast Game Game Pass. This is Ryan from Game Game Pass. Welcome. Hello, I'm Stephen White, co-host of Super Mega Crash Brothers Turbo and Horror Ramblings. This is Eric Slater from Epic Fails of History, Too Young for This Trek, and Comic Zombie. Hey, this is Zach from the Neatcast, Effing Cultured, and Podcasters Assemble. I'm Raphael Moran of the Geeky Dad Podcast. Hi, my name's Bill. You may remember me from such podcasts like The Coordinate, an Attack on Titan podcast, The RPG After Years, a JRPG weekly podcast show, The Tarviran, a Long Dead Wheel of Time podcast, and Bill's JRPG Adventures and Other Trappings podcast, which is just nonsense most of the time. And today, a podcast 65 million plus years in the making. I'm here to talk about Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. 1993's Jurassic Park. Here it is. Here we go. Strap in. Bum 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 bum. I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica. spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve. separated by 65 million years of evolution. How can we possibly have the slightest idea? You feel that? What to expect? Hold on to your butts. All major theme parks had problems. But John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. Go faster. 
Kicking off season number nine, Jurassic Park slash World. Over the past few years and several seasons of Podcasters Assemble, we've covered the MCU from Iron Man to Endgame, the Star Wars saga, all 25 James Bond films, several kaiju movies leading up to Godzilla vs. Kong. We tackled the Mortal Kombat franchise, talked all things Ghostbusters, revisited The Matrix, and reviewed every live-action Batman movie. And now we're counting down to the latest movie in the Jurassic Park series, Jurassic World Dominion. Starting with the original classic, directed by Steven Spielberg. Then we're kicking it off with what started it all, 1993's Jurassic Park. We're here to talk about a movie I saw about 5,000 times in theaters. Flashdance. I mean, Jurassic Park. So here we are back again, ladies and gentlemen, talking about the high-class horror, fantasy, science fiction, pop culture, phenomenon. It's all those things. That is Jurassic Park. Well, I'm here to talk to you about the amazing, fantastical, spectacular Steven Spielberg. I think it was Steven Spielberg, wasn't it? I don't know. I can't really remember. This is Jurassic fucking Park! One of my favorite and one of the most formative movies of my youth. Every generation has that movie that is just a landmark in special effects. In the 70s, you know, it was Superman and Star Wars. You know, when you saw Superman, the tagline was, you will believe a man could fly. When you saw Star Wars, you were transported to another galaxy in the 90s. When we saw Jurassic Park, we believed those dinosaurs were real. Oh, seeing the... So I was I was so into dinosaurs as a kid, and this film just brings it all back to me. I can't remember the first time I watched this film. I'm pretty sure it wasn't in the cinema because I would have been like 10 or something, but oh, this film was just absolutely magical to child, Bill. I just loved it. I watched it over and over. Okay, holy shit. Where to begin on this one? This is one of my five all-time favorite movies. I think that I was just the perfect age for this what is this 95 i'm like 15 years old this movie and like steven spielberg's run this and like saving private ryan like sort of us becoming a little movie buff and movie, i loved everything about these i had the book books behind the scene books i saw it so many times in the theaters the summer it came out i honestly don't remember how many times it's probably close to 10 first time seeing the film it would have been june ish 1993 we went we saw it in theaters and oh my god this is one of the few films directed by steven spielberg that so many have torn apart because of its numerous mistakes not the least of which is that dinosaurs aren't real i'm kidding they're just dead Spielberg, of course, is one of the all-time great directors of our time, with blockbusters like Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Jaws under his belt. And, you know, the guy the guy is a master of uh, the blockbuster. So Steven Spielberg, of course, and Michael Creighton for his novel, but Spielberg gets all the credit in the world for this movie. This is, if you, if you have one of the anniversary DVDs or Blu-rays, anniversary edition DVDs or Blu-rays, uh, there are a lot of features about the making of the film, and you can see just like the vision he had for it is almost exactly what's on the screen. Ah, uh, Spielberg, I love you. And you did an amazing job with this movie. And a lot of that sinks to the, the geniuses at ILM and Stan Winston and all that. But he really, in a career full of like all-time great movies and home runs and grand slams, this has got to be one of his best. You know, it has to be. It's, it's a great movie and it's a popcorn film. Like, what? That doesn't happen very often, and and 
the fact that it's just people running from dinosaurs is just candy on top of it or icing on top of it. And he was at top of his game back then. But I'd argue that Jurassic Park is his best movie. I think what makes Jurassic Park so great is the fact that everyone who was part of the film is doing their job extremely well. All the pieces were there. Great story idea, great cast, great director, great composer, and the promise of mind-blowing special effects unlike the world had ever seen. And for my money, it delivered on those promises, especially in the effects department. Every step of the way, this film works. And that's everyone. The, obviously Spielberg, the director, the, the actors are all playing their roles tremendously. Uh, even the uh, ones in the raptor suits. <laughs> From the casting, to the cinematography, to the music, to the set designs, to the special effects, everything just works. So I honestly don't ever remember a time without Jurassic Park. Um, for me, there is no first time. It's always been omnipresent. Anyway, when this movie dropped in theaters in 1993, it felt like I was the only person in the world who didn't get to see the movie in theaters. So this movie came out in 1993, and I went to see this, I believe with my father. I'm not sure if my brother was there. He's a little bit younger. I was 11. So you can imagine that I have some very strong memories about this film. Now for months, it felt like this big event that I was missing out on. All of these other movies and TV shows were making references and jokes, and I was just out of the loop. I first saw this one as a kid. I was Definitely too young to see it in theaters. It wasn't until it hit home video that I first saw bits and pieces of the film outside of the trailer. We got it the day it came out on VHS. I bought it the day it came out on DVD. I bought it on Blu-ray. I've got it digitally. I mean, you name it. I've seen it hundreds of times, it feels like. But I remember my dad rented it on VHS. And despite being obsessed with dinosaurs at the time, it scared the crap out of me. In second grade, we had to do the whole write a paper on what you want to be when you grew up, and I wrote it on uh, wanting to be an archaeologist. Um, I remember having to do some other projects as a very young kid uh, where it talked about the meteors wiping out, you know, all the dinosaurs. Um, I was big into Dinotopia. I had, and probably still have it somewhere, um, a whole dictionary on tons of different dinosaurs that I just remember, like, essentially reading from cover to cover. Um, yeah, and it even went so far as to lead into, like, herpetology. Uh, and now, like, I would even attribute my love for Godzilla and Kaiju to Jurassic Park. So Jurassic Park is a pretty big deal to me. This is also one of those franchises that I watch uh, in its entirety, probably once every other year. I actually happened to be at my best friend's house and someone had bought the VHS, so I watched some of it on their big screen TV. I don't remember watching it all for whatever reason, but at least I got a big screen experience. After that, I was not really sure when I actually first sat down to really watch the film. It's just kind of been there for 30 years. By the time the second one came out, I had become a huge fan of the series, uh, had a bunch of the toys, and even had the game for Game Boy, Sega Genesis, and Super Nintendo. I, I know a lot about the ancillary stuff, had some of the toys, a lot of good stuff. The Super Nintendo game, I had that so hard you couldn't pause it, you had to just play it all the way through. Genesis one was kind of better, you could be the dinosaur. All three of which were all very different, 
which we'll have to cover on a future Patreon bonus episode. You didn't really get a lot of great dinosaur movies. You know, you got like Carnosaur and shit like that. But when I saw the trailers for this and you had the, the whole bit with the T-Rex foot and the shaking of the wall, I mean, I was so hyped. I can't even like... You know, nowadays I get really hyped up for, you know, superhero stuff or horror movies that look really cool. And there's every now and then I get really excited for one. But I don't know if I've ever been more excited for a movie than I was for Jurassic Park. And thankfully, uh, the hype was not only real, but somewhat even understated. It was even better than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I loved everything about it. I mean, everything. (laughs) As soon as the movie was done, I didn't realize it was based off a book because I was an idiot kid. But as soon as I had seen it, I went out and got the book and read it like four times. Um, obviously, there's some pretty significant differences between the book and the movie, but it's a great book. Uh, even better movie, I would say. I was aware of the book by Michael Crichton, but I never read it. And I still haven't to this day. It wasn't until the third movie came out that I actually read the original book by Michael Crichton. This is one of the rare cases where the movie is just as good as the book both of which are great in their own way. There are a lot of interesting differences between the book and the movie, which Corey and I will also be breaking down on an upcoming bonus episode on the Patreon. I had heard about numerous differences between the book and the movie, but that didn't surprise me. That's common knowledge of most books and TV movie adaptations. I had heard about the numerous differences between the book and the movie, but that didn't surprise me. If you've ever read Jaws and watched the movie, it's not a shocker. Sometimes it's a good idea to stray away from the source material. The novel Planet of the Apes by Pierre Boulle is nothing like the original film, and I would argue that the film is far superior. I also read these novels. I read like Jurassic Park and Lost World. I read Congo, which, uh, you know, that movie, I do love that movie. And Sphere, which was a huge letdown, because Sphere is, I think, my favorite. Well, I can't speak as to whether or not it is or isn't better than its source material. There seems to be more talk about the film than the book, so one might say it is. I mean, we're talking about a film directed by Steven Spielberg during his prime. But, you know, they do a good job with this, because, like, the novel, it's, it's, like, heavy. It's, like, a very 80s, like, about businesses you know it's a lot about the business and like how they're making their money in gen and a lot of details about like yeah like that kind of side of stuff now while the book of course is i think superior to the film damn this film is good it's one of the most kick-ass movies of ever of ever Now, let's talk cast. Favorite actors. Um, Obviously, like, everyone in this is phenomenal. Uh, It goes without saying, the entire cast is great. Upon seeing the film, I cannot say that I was familiar with any of the known actors. Uh, We have Sam Neill as Dr. Alan Grant. Laura Dern as Ellie Sadler. The amazing Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm. Richard Attenborough as John Hammond. Wayne Knight as Dennis Nedry. And, of course, Samuel Jackson as himself. I know now that the main cast had careers before this. I just personally wasn't very familiar with them. The characters were great. The movie is full of incredible characters, memorable characters from, uh, you know, of course, your main cast with the eternally underrated Sam Neill as my favorite Jurassic Park character, Dr. Alan Grant. I like uh, Dr. Grant in the movie, played by, what's his name? Chester Sternface. Sam Neill. 
Now, we had some great characters and actors and actresses in this film. Sam Neill, I knew him from The Hunt for Red October. He plays Dr. Alan Grant. Played by Sam Neill, Dr. Alan Grant. Sam Neill plays a very capable Alan Grant, and I'm sure these days we'd get a Chris Pratt type in the role or something like that. Funny enough, Kurt Russell, who played Chris Pratt's father in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, was initially considered for Alan Grant, but he wanted all the money. But that money was for the dinosaurs, so, you know, they, they weren't really going to give that up. Plus, Russell is kind of an action hero type, and I like that Neil doesn't really fit that bill. It makes his character as Alan Grant more believable. It's good. He's just like a... Just like a stalwart, generic kind of like, hmm, I'm a good guy with good ideas and mostly good plans. But, you know, it's he does it well. He does it great. But I'd say, I mean, I mentioned Dr. Grant's my favorite. Sam Neill is one of my favorite actors, and I think he does such an awesome job in this. He's even great in Jurassic Park 3, but we're not going to soil Jurassic Park by talking about that just yet. Laura Dern, I did not know her from anything, but I, I really enjoyed her as Dr. Ellie Sattler. Dr. Sattler, Ellie Sattler, played by Laura Dern. Laura Dern was a face I recognized, but I couldn't place. Was it because she reminded me of her father, actor Bruce Dern, the only actor in Hollywood to kill John Wayne in a movie? Possibly. But doubtful since he was a very rat-looking bitch, and she's fairly easy on the eyes. I think Laura Dern as uh, Dr. Ellie Sattler is... A much more compelling character, much more interesting, and I don't know why. I think it just might be that Laura Dern herself is a bit more expressive and that Ellie Sattler had a little bit more emotional range to her character. Neither one of them are very deep, you know, they they work together. Richard Attenborough, Dr. John Hammond. Oh, Richard Attenborough was a face I was not familiar with at all, but his name and presence alone exuded that of a man of great importance. Solid casting in my book. I, like Michael Caine, he, uh, in the Dark Knight trilogy, Richard puts on a clinic. I love him. Something I noticed on this rewatch is that Attenborough is constantly out of breath. I don't know if it's because his character is constantly almost like running, but he has a cane, um, or if he's just, just bursting with excitement the entire time. But everything's like, <sighs> welcome this, that. It's like he's always out of breath. It's just this, almost like he has this childlike that childlike excitement that he's trying to convey. And it's just wonderful. Wonderful. I like the Dr. Hammond character in the movie played by Richard Attenborough. So brother maybe to the um, guy that does the nature documentary stuff. I love Richard Attenborough is like, he's never in movies. He does like, I always get him and David Attenborough confused, but they both do like nature documentaries or like or he narrates them. I, I get confused. He plays his character, I think, perfectly. Wonderful. And, and um, you know, Richard Attenborough's Dr. Hammond. I mean, you go down the list. Sam Jackson's in there. You've got Wayne Knight's Dennis Nedry might be one of the most famous Jurassic Park characters. And he's only in a few minutes of screen time, uh, but he's fantastic. Wayne Knight was perfectly cast as Nedry. Wayne Knight as Dennis Nedry. Most people remember him as Newman from Seinfeld, and equating the two is not very difficult. I feel like I remember him prior to this film, but even looking over his filmography, nothing clicked. Basic instinct, maybe? Ian Malcolm. I mean, honestly, the, the whole dynamic there also with Dr. Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum, fantastic character. Jeff Goldblum, I have a interesting story for that later, portraying Dr. Ian Malcolm. Uh, rock star, rock star, uh, chaotician. 
super made up, super made up. Oh, it's the Bloom with his chaos chaos of petition. You know what, Doctor Ian Malcolm? You're you're a math guy. That's it. You're a mathologist at best. There's no, there are no chaoticians, <laughs> nor should there be. Ian Malcolm, he's a rock star. He's a rock star chaotician, and it's just you know we've all seen it. he's the best. And Jeff Goldblum is a treasure in everything that he is in, even if it is horrible movies. This is not one of them. I'm referring to other things later. You know, I, I who doesn't love Jeff Goldblum? You know, his character is such a dick, isn't he? <laughs> I may be the only one, <laughs> but I think he's a dick. I mean, yeah, you know, Ian Malcolm, Ian, Ian Malcolm is kind of a prick, but he's also, he seems pretty cool. He seems like a cool guy. Uh, he certainly did to me at the time. And then the Chaos Theory stuff sounded pretty fun. Um, I hadn't heard of it before. I think I might have bought a book afterwards. I don't quite understand it beyond that, like, Shit's complicated. That seems to be the gist of it. You know, in the '90s, he was the 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 cool nerdy guy. You know, <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. Uh, what 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 can I say uh, about this beautiful man that the the world has already said about him? Uh, and then, of course, Ian Malcolm played to. Uh, his usual weird charmingness of uh, by by Jeff Goldblum. Um, I paid attention to him from this film because his his magnetic uh, uh, personality and his very unique uh, deline delivery. No actor talks like Jeff Goldblum. Many want to, but no one will ever compare. Uh, he has a, a real strange way of talking and. You might say it's kind of, you know, on par with Shatner, but I don't think so. I feel like his, uh, his, it's very passionate. You know, it's not very robotic. It's passionate. He's thinking deeply about uh, the things that he wants to talk about. In, in this movie, he's talking about dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. I, I know this impression is not probably that good, no matter how hard I try. I can't really match it. But anyway, he's the biggest highlight outside of the dinosaur spectacle, in my opinion. I mean, he, he he wasn't the main character of this movie, but, you know, he's definitely the most interesting one, in my opinion, you know. I guess my favorite character in the movie is probably um, Jeff Goldblum's Dr. Ian Malcolm. He's charming as all hell. He's uh, one sexy MFer, as uh, no one besides me says. Um, he's extremely funny. Uh, he's the whole package. Smart, funny, beautiful. Was not the love. He's got a shirt off for a good chunk of the movie. Um, it obviously memed to hell and back again. This movie in general, but him in specific. It's so many good lines. So many good lines. My particular favorite is the, like, <laughs> I hate always being right in the middle of, you know, hot danger. I think that's pretty funny. Samuel Jackson as Ray. Samuel Jackson was someone I definitely knew prior to this film. Well, this is around at the time his star was prominently rising. One of my favorite scenes in a movie came from 1988's Eddie Murphy vehicle, Coming to America, where Jackson held up the McDowell's restaurant. Just in a very small scene, but his presence in it was dynamite. Same goes for this movie. He's a bit more reserved than his usual fare, but electric in every scene. Those are your main people. But yeah, I mean, it's got this thing. This thing has it all. It's got great characters, engaging characters. You know, you've got st- character arcs for pretty much everybody. 
everybody's great. Bob Peck is Muldoon. Uh, Joseph Mazzello is Tim Murphy. The one guy, Tim, I I can't remember his name. Hang on. Joseph Mazzello and Ariana Richards playing Lex and Tim. Joseph Mazzello, he's in a bunch of stuff. He's in Social Network. He was in The Pacific, which is the follow-up to Band of Brothers, which is a show based on World War II, based on uh, Saving Private Ryan. Steven Spielberg loves this kid. We see him later in Band of Brothers when he's all grown up. Ariana Richards is Lex. Uh, the lady, Lex, I, I don't know. She was in Angus, which was a, a movie about like a thick brown haired teenager guy, a chubby teen, a chubby awkward teen movie where he was a chubby awkward teen uh, in love with a conventionally attractive cheerleader played by the Ariana Richards. At the time, I was also, I felt like a chubby, brown haired, awkward teen. And then you have, you know, Ellie and uh, Dr. Grant. Those characters are, are, are pretty good as well you know they they they're not the typical action um hero characters that you see in movies the kids lex and tim were also actors that look very familiar ariana richardson had been in tremors a few years prior which is a, another bloody good film if i may say so and joseph mazzello was in radio flyer with elijah wood so i vaguely remember them just didn't quite put my finger on it at the time one of the very very few movies especially of the era that has the children in peril that are with adults and not like in a, a Goonies, Super 8, Stranger Things scenario where they can kind of act a little bit more independent and not just scream and hope for the adults to save them. Also, these kids are the best kids. These kid actors are great. They do a nice job of balancing that because these kids could have been a nightmare, but both Tim and Lex, for the most part, uh, are, are quite enjoyable characters. I think Tim especially, just because Lex a lot of times gets to play the you know, screaming your head off character. And that's not always fun to watch, but she does a really nice job. Uh, I would love to see that both of them show up in um, Jurassic Park 6. Well, fingers crossed we'll see that. It was good to have a blockbuster that actually had kids in the main roles. These kids are, they look so scared. They're so smart at the same time and also scared. And also they have fun when they, when they get to eat all the jello stuff. Oh, Steven. Steven's good at making a good, uh, like movie spread for think of the spread from hook like this was close to it but not anywhere real because that was like imaginary food like chris columbus did hogwarts and they had their feast there yeah he had a, he had a place to start and it was hook and then you get a little taste of it here in jurassic park so it, it was a, it was a great movie for the whole family to see there's a lot of other supporting characters as well, and we'll mention them, I sure, I'm, I'm sure, as we go through the film. Just, I feel like everyone hits the nail on the head, but I say, as I've gotten older, I think I really like Muldoon a lot more. He's got a cool head, he's got a cool accent, and he has a cooler outfit. I mean, honestly, this guy's basically just like the, you know, Steve Irwin of the one film. Uh, it's a damn shame that they sacrificed him because I would love to see this old dude wearing the exact same gear in the upcoming film. Now let's talk dinosaurs. So of course the actors are great, but the reason we all went to see this was not to see Dr. Grant, Dr. Sadler, Dr. Mal Malcolm. It was to see Dr. T-Rex and Dr. Velociraptor and Dr. Brachiosaur, and they are all excellent doctors. I dinosaurs the t-rex scenes are absolutely incredible the raptors are so scary 
Um, as cool as the T-Rex and the Raptors are, I, I think the Dilophosaurus is where it's at. The, uh, the Dilo- Dilophosaurus. It's impressive knowing that the believability of it all is still intact. Coolest dinos. Again, obviously all of them. So I remember growing up, I was a huge dinosaur kid. That's right. I was one of those weirdos. Uh, I had a ton of dinosaur books. I, I knew them by like species name. Uh, I mean, I could tell you what era they were from. I don't know where all that information went, but I knew it. But man, like the more I watch this getting older, the more I'm impressed with the Dilophosaurus uh, animatronic. He is such a little shithead. Um, I, I love that character. The way the frills go up when it spits its acid, really great stuff. So the Dilophosaurus, did you ever have the toy as a kid? Which I definitely have not mentioned. I had uh, a metric shitload of the Jurassic Park toys. I know I don't own all of them, but I probably still own most of them in a box in storage. But yeah, the Dilophosaurus, it was one of those where you squeeze, I think it's like the belly, um, is a pouch. And so you like stick its face into water and... You know, you squeeze the air out and let water get in, and then it had a detachable frill, and you stick the frill on, and you squirt it at your mom from, like, around the corner or something, and then you get your Dilophosaurus toy taken away. It's great. It's a good time. Brilliant design. Even though there's no evidence that the species uh, had frills or sprayed acid. Every design is mostly on point, with some liberties taken, obviously. Obviously, there's some things where the filmmakers had to make up some details. Another thing that Michael Crichton is known for is this sort of like bucking against uh, conventional wisdom uh, around science or or other popular held beliefs. And there was a lot of that in the book and then in the movie, uh, which is interesting because I think... At the time this movie came out, the um, crater, the Yucatan crater may not have been widely known. And certainly dinosaurs being killed off by an asteroid was a a theory, but I don't think it was completely um, embraced the way it is now. And stuff about dinosaurs being not just like cold-blooded reptiles and and being uh the the antecedents the ancestors to birds i feel like was first popularized in this movie and was definitely controversial at the time of the movie and anyways michael creighton gets into that kind of thing he clearly he clearly likes that that aspect of writing a a fun mishap there is no way that that Dilophosaurus would just fit in the passenger seat. But it is such a good scene. Oh my God, it's so good. I love how inconsistent this is. One major flaw in the dino designs in this movie is that real life scientists have since discovered uh, that most dinosaurs may have had feathers like birds. uh, But one easy way to explain that away is that the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park aren't true dinosaurs. Uh, They're mutations because InGen used frog DNA to fill in the gaps, which is why they were able to change genders and breed and all that, uh, despite the genetic engineering. Which apparently, um, according to archaeologists and and others that study dinosaurs, forgive me, I'm blanking on what else you might call them, but uh, apparently disagree very strongly with the depiction of a lot of the dinosaurs in this film, especially the idea that they're all reptilian looking rather than feathered but you know we're not here to discuss the science of it because really they're pulling dna from mosquitoes frozen in amber millions of years ago oh okay and you found more than one 
that all happen to have dinosaur DNA in them and it looks like you found dozens, that's fucking stupid. So if we can just look past that, I think we can look past the rest of the pseudoscience, you know? Technically they should all be like frog looking because they use frog DNA. It's difficult to know what a real dinosaur actually look like, but if they're ever was such a thing, you know? <laughs> I mean, dinosaurs, what a, what, a, what a fairy tale. Anyway, but for whatever reason, reptiles or reptilian skin seems to be the thing that works in his favor. I mean, would it be weird if they weren't even bird-like either? Like, maybe they were some kind of freakish platypus-type creatures? That would actually intrigue me, honestly. But I digress. But as far as like with the coolest dinosaur, and that's hard. It's really hard. The Dilophosaurus is very memorable. It's fan, and it's like you know, it pops up on on Newman, and it's a uh, uh, sorry Nedry, and it's all kind of cute. And then it you know busts its weird fan out and just plops that goop in his face, and you're like, oh shit. Um, so you know, it's oh, this is tough. The Triceratops is really impressive, just a complete animatronic, and it looks incredible. Oh, it's hard. The raptors probably... You know what? All right. When I was a kid and I saw this, it was the raptors all day long, so I'm going to have to stick with the raptors. Although nowadays, I think I'd probably be more towards the T-Rex. Man, I love the raptor sound effects. Like, I don't even know how to explain it, but oh my God. Like, it's such a chilling sound between, like, the chittering and, like, the screeching. It's like air screeching. How do you how do you do that? How do they make these? I'm not gonna look that up. How do they make these? I just want to be amazed by this for the rest of my life. Also, in real life, as far as we know, Velociraptors were much much smaller. The raptors are just so cool and and so scary and uh, really the villains of the movie. If there are villains besides you know corporate greed and man shouldn't meddle. This would be a great time to mention that I used to own one of the newborn raptor puppets. Or I think it was supposed to be a newborn Rex because it wasn't Jurassic Park official. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure I still have this in a box somewhere. Uh, when the movie came out, it inspired uh, a bunch of people to go into paleontology, um, which I think is cool. That's pretty cool. I didn't it didn't make me i've never really liked dinosaurs whatever they're fine they're old dead monsters who cares do they breathe fire no not that we know of are any of them capable of speech and or magic no also no not that we know of so i don't care <laughs> they can go fuck themselves i like dragons is what i'm saying dragons better than dinosaurs end of discussion Anyway, after the movie came out, this did not make me suddenly think that dinosaurs were good. Um, but I, I honestly did get curious about uh, the whole chaos theory stuff. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. What a cold open. And I've been waiting since we finished all the Bond films to say that again. <laughs> this has one of the best openings of a movie ever. Boom. You can hear that noise and it just gives you chills. I saw it. It was the loudest movie that had ever been. It was like the THX was new. I think it was the first THX movie. It was the loudest movie. I never heard scared the paint. My sister was so scared. She got down on the, on the, she's like five years younger than me. She's like 10. She got down on the ground almost had to hide because it was so loud. That first scene with the Velociraptor. The opening of this film I loved because as a kid you didn't know. Is it is it opening? Is there actually a dinosaur coming through coming through the forest? Oh wait, no, it's got headlights. Clearly, clearly it's not a dinosaur. Where it's coming through the foliage and you think it's a, it's a dinosaur but it's just a crane but inside the crane is, is a dinosaur. Fake out. 
And you've got the whole scene where they're pulling the raptors out of the cage. Oh, so good. Uh, it really sets as a tone and foreshadows what's to come. It's called Isla Nublar because noobs. It's the Isle of Noobs. So the movie opens with this really great scene where they're delivering a raptor to the raptor pen. So as we're loading something big and scary into some sort of paddock, why, why do we need a human gatekeeper? Gatekeeper! <laughs> Wait a minute. Gatekeeper? Is Shugoni Weaver going to turn up with a key? Can't we have a thing lift that up? And why, why did it not lock? It said it was locked, but yet the raptor like, somehow has enough force that it pushes this entire... I don't know, a container away from the gate? How, 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 how does that work? I love how we don't get a good view of the raptor. We just see what it's able to do. Uh, and I assume this is the infamous uh, eldest female raptor who ends up taking over the entire raptor pen. But there's just this, this great tension. And right away, we get some in-your-face branding. Just like in Ghostbusters, the logo is used throughout the story. Muldoon, with, the, with those shorts and that shotgun... And that cut icy stare, not even flinching, not even twitching. And it ends with Muldoon just shouting, Shooter! Anyways, I'm sure everyone's going to do their best of Muldoon impression of saying, Shooter! 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 Plus the hand, like, pathetically pulling through Muldoon's arm. Shoot her! And maybe we can get, like, Bill uh, or some other British person to actually say that well in a British accent. Shoot her! Something like that. This really is one of the most quotable movies of all time. But I still say that. I mean, there's so many lines in this movie that I still use to this day. And that that's one of it. He loses control of that situation right at the beginning, but... What a f-ing hero, man. What a great character. And uh, where's that actor? You don't see him in stuff. Where did he go? You know? Who's that guy? And that's the scene. Is It really sets the tone for... Come on. This is, like, what a strong intro. Oh, man. The opening of this movie really gives you all the feels. It's like the same sort of feels that you get when you open up, like, an Indiana Jones movie or, like, the Goonies. You know, there's that real sort of sense of like something magical is coming very shortly just love it love it love it love it hey yeah this is a you know a whimsical adventure where we're gonna bring dinosaurs back but also yeah people are gonna die if you're a fan of this podcast and want to see it continue help support us on patreon where you can unlock tons of exclusive content including but not limited to movie commentaries ad-free versions of our promo specials extended cuts early access to new episodes behind the scenes clips first access to merchandise blooper reels and even a chance to vote on what we cover next on our podcasters disassembled episodes just head right on over to patreon.com slash podcasters assemble that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash podcasters assemble link in the show notes Are you nostalgic for a simpler time? A time where controllers didn't have so many buttons. A time where games weren't so overly complicated by so many plot devices. Yeah. Me too. I miss my NES. Hi. (laughs) I'm Bill, and I absolutely love old video games. But 
I didn't have anyone to play with. So I decided to start the Super Switch Club. That's right, a podcast dedicated to discussing and reliving the nostalgia of retro video games that are also on the Nintendo Online Virtual Library. Each week, my friends and I will discuss games from the NES to the SNES. Games like... Super Mario World, Kirby's Dreamland 3, Donkey Kong Country, The Legend of Zelda, Super Metroid, Balloon Fight, Punch Out, A Link to the Past, F Zero, and so much more. The Super Switch Club is a Podcasters Assemble style show from the We Can Make This Work, probably, podcast network, where we'll be replaying and discussing some of our favorite video games from our childhood. So join us on the Super Switch Club where you can relive the nostalgia of tearing your hair out over an NES game that loves to troll the shit out of you. Best of all, you can too. Head on over to probablywork.com slash superswitchclub now to learn more. So they're digging up amber to pull the dino blood out of the mosquitoes trapped inside Uh, dna has a half-life of something i think it was like 531 years um so unfortunately this could never happen and i really think it should happen the first thing that i noticed recently re-watching this movie is how well paced the beginning of the movie is. And uh, yeah, this this one has a ton of exposition, but the movie really delivers it in a clever way. Spielberg has a great way of filming dialogue scenes in a really dynamic way uh, that keeps them interesting. I feel like I've never paid attention to this before. Yeah, big start. Uh, then you see Gennaro, the lawyer, and he's got a, you know, strange sort of exposition scene where he goes all the way to this, like, mine to talk about the fact that they have to go to the island because uh, that worker got hurt in the previous scene and they might get sued. I think he's supposed to meet Hammond there, but Hammond is off flying to go see uh, Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler. The first 20 minutes really lays out a bunch of stuff uh, setting up the whole rest of the movie. They do some fun exposition with that cartoon. The movie knows that people came to it expecting to see realistic looking dinosaurs on the screen. They tease a little bit with it at the beginning where it just turns out to be a, a backhoe or something. And they, deliver on the dinosaurs after that those first 20 minutes so they don't make you they don't make us wait that long for it um and those 20 minutes even now really uh i feel like fly by and get a lot of information out there that's important to the movie i think also if you're familiar with michael Crichton, you know that he's really good at that kind of thing he is a master of a kind of I don't know, a higher quality airport novel, which just means it's a good read that you can read fast. Now we meet Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler and how they're uh, searching for dinosaurs and using, they're shooting things into the ground and they're getting images back. I'm sure he just said Grant's retired. Like, why would an insurance company want a retired archaeologist to do a site inspection? And why, if Grant's retired, is he working on an archaeological dig? And if he's retired, why is he with this really young blonde lady? I guess they're in a relationship that may or may not be appropriate depending on when it started. Because 
as perhaps you've heard uh, fairly recently, contemporaneous to when I'm recording this, uh, Sam Neill and Laura Dern both expressed surprise uh, when they came to discover seemingly only recently that their characters are like 20 years apart in age. Anyway, if everyone's so shocked that uh, Laura Dern was 23 and Dr. Grant, Sam Neill, he's, he's like 40. Uh, there are a couple it's very clear right away. He touches her butt kind of like almost almost immediately because he, he puts his hand on the small of her back. Kind of, it, it's, they're very familiar. They're talking about having kids. And I feel like that like lightly, it didn't break the internet, but it definitely cracked the internet. Cracked the internet for a hot half minute there. Uh, I mean, it, it, it threw me for a loop. I saw them, uh, saw the movie, and I thought, yeah, they're probably, you know, maybe like a eight-year age gap here. Like, Laura Dern's probably in her late 20s. Sam Neill's probably in his early 30s. It's fine. No, he's like 45 and she's 22 or something. It's wild. I mean, it just feels a bit creepy. She's like, I mean, I love Sam Neill. Like, don't get me wrong, but I feel like the relationship between them two is a bit, I don't know. Like the age gap between Dr. Ellie Sattler and the uh, teenage girl Lex Murphy is half as long as the gap between her and Alan Grant. Like, <laughs> she's she's much closer in age to the two children in this movie. So it's kind of funny. But I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a testament to the movie in its own way that that itself didn't come across as weird and creepy, I feel like, for most people on viewing it. But also, they didn't go into too much depth. If, it, if you heard that, like, he was her, uh, you know, teacher or something, or I don't know how, I don't know how college works, her, her, her learning boss, then yeah, that, that probably would have been a lot worse. There's a bit too much of an age gap for me. <laughs> it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. But look, let's just, let's just move over those cracks, shall we? But the transitions in the beginning of this movie are amazing. Uh, they work so well, like going from the raptor to the raft and then the amber to the fossil. Like, holy crap. Oh, there's a scene where they, they, they cut to Alan Grant and uh, Dr. Sadler, Ellie, Ellie, is that her name? <laughs> In Montana. And they actually, they're, they're, they're digging for dinosaurs and they put a, a sonar charge into the ground. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, hey, that's like the thing they do in Final Fantasy VII in the Bone Village. Uh, sorry, that's where my brain is right now. Also, Sam Neill touching the uh, the CRT monitor and it going blurry. <laughs> oh my God, I love a good CRT CRT TV in the older movies. It just reminds me of being young. Oh, you kids today with your flat screen, wide screen, 72 inch TVs. You don't know what it was like. I had a black and white bloody 12-inch TV in my room and it was the size of it was the size of an oven. I loved it. Gave off nice heat in the winter as well. Oh, you could warm your hands off it. I am with you, Dr. Grant. I also hate computers. Who is this kid who's just heckling Grant at the dig site? And then Grant scares the shit out of a, out of a child and yeah, that, that smarmy mouth little bastard. This is a great scene where he's like, they're at the dig and there's all these other, you know, I guess grad students or other... Uh, paleontologists there's one kid that's got this flannel shirt and this big mullet of curly hair should look for that kid it's very cool a lot of good little banter this kid's good in that scene who's like looks like a big turkey and he like freaks the kid out by graphically describing an attack at a velo from velociraptor something that could never happen because they're not around but oh no now we're scared 
about that, and we and we know that they are actually are uh, some velociraptors, and they will be attacking shortly. So you know, Sam, Sam Neil or Grant 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 Neil, let's call him Grant Neil. He literally is giving away all the excitement of the film in the first couple of minutes to this kid, <laughs> telling him exactly all the adventure and action scenes that are going to happen later on in the movie. Excellent foreshadowing. Huge spoilers, though, dude. Huge spoilers. I think that there's a. T- I mean, there's so many great freaking lines in this movie. At the beginning of the film, they're at this dig site looking at like a raptor fossil they found, and or a fossil they found, and Doctor Grant's got like his you know his raptor claw fossil. And this little chubbo kid just like shows up out of nowhere. I have no idea what he's doing there. None whatsoever. And he's like, it doesn't look so scary. And Dr. Grant just casually strolls over and emotionally traumatizes this child for the rest of his waking life. And it's pretty great. And the attack comes from both sides. Not from the front, but from the sides. From the two velociraptors. You didn't even know were there. And that's when they slash you with a six-inch retractable claw on the middle toe like a razor blade it's pretty great when you're alive they start to eat you just like real sushi hey that's it dinosaurs just like human sushi that's what it's all about has the temerity to diss a velociraptor in front of dr allen i love velociraptors grant and uh in return is scarred for the rest of his life and it's pretty hilarious you want to have one of those Want to have some version of little Dr. Grant? Would be nice. They smell. Kids don't smell. They do smell. Babies smell. Some babies smell. Kids are noisy. They're messy. They're expensive. They smell. No lies detected. I mean, I love kids. Kids are, kids are great. They ask all the best questions. John Hammond has such a great introduction. Oh, and here we get John Hammond's intro which is just he just shows up in the helicopter walks in opens the fridge pops the champagne comes in what a scene he comes in with this helicopter they're pissed you know (laughs) comes in he's he's a little hunched over popping the champagne hey hey we were saving that uh dr grant says in his weird guy from new zealand trying to do an american guy accent and it just sounds a little off but we love it we love that voice. We love we love a guy doing an American accent who's not from America. It sounds weird, off-putting. Liam Neeson does it, and we we love it. We're like, there's something weird about the way this guy talks that I, I can't get enough. And he just turns on that charm. Hey, Richard Attenborough! I always forget about Richard Attenborough. Uh, he presented my wife with her uh, her PhD. Pretty cool. Pretty cool dude. And he just Richard Attenborough kills it in this film. In the book. Uh, Dr. Hammond is, I feel like, more of a, just like a straight-up evil rich villainy, like, hey, 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 gonna make a pack of dinosaurs and make a million dollars. And in the movie, he's like, you know, a jovial uh, grandfather. He kind of looks like, I don't know, he's like a Santa Claus trying to do some, up to some weird shenanigans in the offseason. And I'm always up for, like, an evil, you know, billionaire villain in a movie, but having him be this kindly grandfather, I think was an interesting take, you know, I mean, he's created a park whose entire purpose is to murder the people that come to it. Um, and I think that's funny that it comes from this very, uh, sweet and, uh, uh, gentle, but huge blind spot, uh, man. Perfect. Such a perfect, such a dapper looking dude. So genuine. 
and grounds the entire movie, I feel like. I mean, I don't know, though. Is is Dr. Hammond a nice guy? Like, a velociraptor eats one of his workers, and so he's getting sued, and then the financiers behind the park are getting ready to pull out, and so then he bribes two uh, dinoologists who he's already had in his pocket funding their digs. He bribes them to come to his island of horrors to, like, you know, hand wave everything away and say that it's okay. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe he's not a nice guy. <laughs> he asked him to come for the weekend, like it's some sort of weird swingers sex party. Yep, if it's Richard Attenborough, I mean, let's face it. For today, I guarantee it. Uh, maybe a, a pen of weed testimonial. I've got a uh, helicopter waiting at Jakarta. But anyway, so cute. And I do want to point out that they're in this little messy trailer that I assume that Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler uh, kind of live and work out of. And uh, he pours this uh, moe- this champagne into, like, big old, like, pine glasses. When right behind him, he said, I know my way around the kitchen. No, 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 no. Is there champagne flutes in sight? Okay? And I've never noticed that in 25 years. But there's champagne flutes right behind him, like, on a little, on top of the microwave or whatever. And uh, he's immediately rewarded with the opportunity of a lifetime to go be eaten by dinosaurs on an island. Like I said, it's right up your alley. Like, one of the things that's going to happen throughout these films is Hammond just has these amazingly, like, innocent scenes. Uh, But essentially what you're going to realize, um, like, particularly by the beginning of the next movie, is that this dude is a piece of shit. He is absolutely horrible but damn if they don't do an amazing job of like really making you like this guy in the beginning spared no expense spared no expense count one so we reach the scene where nedry is talking to dodgson and like corporate espionage is going on we got dodson over here hey everybody dodson over here see nobody cares dodson we got dodson here see nobody cares Nice hat. What are you trying to look like a secret agent? Ah, yes, Nedry. I I never watched Seinfeld, so I did not know him as Newman. 18 minutes. 18 minute window and your company catches up on 10 years of research. Don't get cheap on me, Dodson. A coolant chamber inside. Customs can check it. Go ahead. See? 15 viable embryos. They have to be viable back in San Jose before you get the other 50,000. I love the music in this film. I just, I love it. Everything perfect with the with the movie's just soundtrack, everything. And how about that John Williams score? It's as memorable as most of his scores are. Now, this is easily one of the best John Williams scores ever composed. We get a fun little moment in the helicopter. Oh, the music. The music's so good. And here's where it really hits, like, the first time when they, they where you see, where you see the island. But you can't really talk about Jurassic Park without mentioning Steven Spielberg, but maybe more importantly, without mentioning John Williams. I'm going to go on a limb here and say that a bunch of people probably love the music in this movie. I don't know. It's a bit much for me. But it's from here where we get the sweeping shot of the helicopter going over the island. And this is where we first get an intro to the, the score. Oh, this music. Oh, the music while they're in the helicopter is amazing. And just flying into the island. 
It just looks incredible and just feels magical. I love it. Music fits the, the movie perfectly. This actual piece is called Journey to the Island, and it's a combination of the main theme, uh, the two basic main themes of the film. And it is, it's just this whole part from approaching the island, and then they see the brachiosaurus and the score. So it's just, I, I legitimately got emotional during this part of the film. The dude really is one of the all-time greats. Between this, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, Superman, and uh, literally <laughs> half of the movies out there. Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, Superman, Jaws. It's, uh, what's his name? John Williams. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's Star Wars stuff is fine. There are so many iconic movie soundtracks or just music themes for me, I think it will always be Jurassic Park, and a lot of that is going to be nostalgia and when I watched it and when I grew up. Star Wars, still iconic. You hear it, you know exactly what it is. But Jurassic Park, when you hear anything from this film, you know also exactly when and where it is from. I should, for the record, I'd say I'm not like super into music, generally speaking, so feel free to disregard <laughs> My complete dismissal of the <laughs> works of John Williams for no reason. So if you ever catch me humming something just because I'm bored and for the sake of humming something, uh, it is probably one of three John Williams tunes. It's going to be Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, or Yellow Submarine. That leitmotif of da-da-da, da-da-da, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's everywhere in this score. John Williams, of course, is the, probably the most famous film composer there ever was. Uh, you've heard his music your entire childhood and life if you never even knew his name. Uh, if you've seen a Harry Potter film or Star Wars or Indiana Jones or you name it, you've heard John Williams' scores and Jurassic Park, of course, uh, is right up there with them. The theme is iconic. Um, you know, if all you do, it's just na-na-na-na-na, and you know exactly what it is. You don't have to go any further than that first little group of notes. The score is incredible. John Williams, you know... Surprisingly, this was not John Williams' best score even of the year because he also did Schindler's List this year, um, which won every award. But this is this might be, let me think real quick, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, all that. I mean, this might be my actual favorite of his. And I know a lot of people don't hold it up there with Star Wars and E.T. and, and Indiana Jones, but there's something about maybe the time I saw the film, but that this is this is my favorite score. In fact... Side note, uh, we got our first CD player that Christmas, like the first one, uh, 1993, right? And uh, this was this soundtrack was the first CD I ever owned. Not, not Metallica, not Green Day or whatever it was at the time. It was the Jurassic Park soundtrack. And that's what I would play over and over again. Just absolute masterclass in, in composing by Williams yet again. And it really just, you know, it elevates everything about the film. That initial scene where they arrive at Isla Nublar and the helicopter is breathtaking. Ah, yes, the helicopter ride in, and we're a hundred and something miles off the coast of... We're somewhere. And we meet... We finally meet Dr. Ian Malcolm. The intro of Jeff Goldblum, who is just amazing and hilarious. And Jeff Goldblum again. I love... I love him. This was my first introduction to Jeff Goldblum, and I did not know it was Jeff Goldblum. Uh, and he is hitting on Ellie Sattler something fierce. Not as creepy as Peter Venkman in the Ghostbuster films. Actually, um, 
I'm okay with this. A lot of these shots were actually filmed in Hawaii, and I've actually been to where they filmed these uh, initial shots of the helicopter coming in. It's one of the most gorgeous places I've ever seen. But that that helicopter ride in, the music, the, you get that, I don't know, you get that, da, 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 you get that the first time, oh boy, you know, you, ooh, it's, you get to start getting the tingles, and then this, this character moment, this wonderful character moment where everyone's putting their seatbelts on, and then Dr. Crank can't, he can't figure it out. The two ends don't go in. He doesn't like technology. He doesn't like machines. He can't use that computer at the dig site. He touched it. It went fuzzy. He's an old school dude. That's why Dr. Sattler digs him. He's like a throwback. Okay? He ties the two together. He's just, he's safe. You know the kind of guy he is, man. That just speaks volumes. That's just brilliant filmmaking there are a lot of great scenes in this film but starting from the helicopter approach to the island all the way through the brachiosaurus scene is one of my favorites when the jeep stop and and grant and sattler get out and they're looking at the brachiosaurus and then they see the herds moving ah man this and the music swells and then of course we get that iconic moment where the paleontologists first set their eyes on real life dinosaurs. So we get their first glimpse of the dinosaurs and the acting here is actually, I was surprised, it is remarkable. And when, with the first moment where you see the Brachiosaurus, it still makes me feel really, really emotional. And then you get bloody Jeff Goldblum in the back room with his cheesy line saying, you crazy son of a bitch, you did it, you did it. It's just like, they did it man, they did it Goldblum. We created dinosaurs. I just want to hug a Brachiosaurus. It's right on his back. Please, God, please. It's all I want in life. Oh, it's so emotional. It's great. I love it. Pulling back so much nostalgia and so many parts of this film made you believe that dinosaurs could be real. It, it just looked real. And the CGI, you can tell it's CGI, but it still looks really good for 1993. And I don't know... Between Goldblum and Neil, Laura Dern, I believe they're actually looking at dinosaurs. I mean, they have the—I mean, they're pretty exaggerated expressions, but it's—it's it's amazing. Sam Neil sells this moment when they first see the dinosaurs and the acting. You know, they're doing a good job. They're looking at nothing. There's there's really nothing there that they could even look at. And like every kid loves dinosaurs so much, it's like such a kid thing. You know what I mean? Loving dinosaurs. They're big, goofy lizards that are, were real. It's the craziest thing. They are the craziest thing. It's like a world gone by. And kids love them because the different shapes they are. Because they're badass and big and have horns and big teeth. It looks crazy. It looks real as f***. What a wild moment. And, you know what? It's believable. And Grant has that amazing reaction where he slowly stands up and takes off his shades. It's still effective also makes for a great meme. This movie is very gifable. I think one of the truest signs of like the quality of this movie, it not only maintains itself in the world of memes, but I feel like this particular moment sort of made a revival in like the last like two years. I've seen it a lot more, uh, whether it be on Facebook post or just yes, anywhere on the internet. But feel like you can tell the quality of something or the memorableness of something by how long it can hold up in memes and how many new memes can be made for it. This movie is very gifable. Uh, it's like on another level. 
Guy Fieri would call it, out of bounds. He's play. He plays this mature, wise throwback. I can't deal with technology, but like the childlike wonder of seeing this thing that he obviously loves so much, has spent his whole life dedicated to the study of. He sees it's real. He immediately is like, "Yep, that's where I, I can't argue with it. I'm a scientist. I'm looking at it right now." He's immediately like, "The neck, the neck, and it's warm-blooded, and and it's in it's right in front of me." He doesn't openly weep, but like he maybe could have, and I would have been like, "Yeah, I feel you." And we get Attenborough, who's who delivers that welcome to Jurassic Park and it's just the whole thing with the score going and I I legitimately teared up because it just brought me back to just a time when a much let's just say a much simpler time to coin a phrase and we get oh we also get Malcolm you did it crazy son of a bitch you did it welcome to Jurassic Park so let's be honest here right you need I know they, they, they mention this later on but you need to have a helicopter just to reach the island okay it's on this big island I assume they're going to have some sort of really posh hotel on board to stay for. He's always mentioning during the film that he spared no expense. Uh, let's face it, this is really going to be a park for the top 1%. I know he doesn't want it to be, but that's what it's going to be. So realistically, if you're going to get like the top percent people going here, like Elon Musk and all that, and then they're probably going to get eaten by dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah, I'm all up for this. Let's make a real Jurassic Park. <laughs> it sounds good. If Jurassic Park was going to happen today in real life, it probably would just be like a Kickstarter, right? Like they would just someone just funded on Kickstarter for like ten thousand dollars, you can get mauled to death by the dinosaur of your choice. For a hundred dollars, you get mauled to death by a random dinosaur. You don't get to pick. Welcome to Jurassic Park, or as I like to call it, the Eat the Rich franchise. I have to admit that even though the effects work of today far surpasses anything they did here. It still holds up for the most part. The special effects, it was uh, like a milestone, really. And and most of all might be Stan Winston's practical effects studio, who just killed it. In the, This is just, uh, it's unbelievable what they did for this film. And it's just, it brings the whole thing together. The CGI special effects kind of hold up, question mark, shrug? I don't know. The first big dino reveal is... I think now the worst looking one in it. Um, but I, my memory at the time is that people were watching it like, Oh my God, dinosaurs are real. You can see them on the screen. Oh, it's yeah. It's, it's, it's super hokey now, but this is, of course it's dated. It's like what? 30 years old, 29. I don't do math. Um, I'm okay. Audition. <laughs> Uh boy. You know, because before the dinosaurs were on screen, they were like claymation, you know, um, Ray Harryhausen. You know, that was that was the landmark special effects back then, you know, and people were their minds were getting blown away by by claymation stuff. And if it wasn't that, it was like, you know, guys in costumes like Godzilla. I don't really have any uh, concrete trivia. Unfortunately, um, in one of my Godzilla books, I know there is like brief mention of Steven Spielberg saying that Godzilla was part of the inspiration for um, how he approached this movie. Because obviously CG was kind of a big deal at the time, but Godzilla was real. 
it was a real outfit so it existed in a physical realm and that being one of the inspirations for using suit actors in this movie and animatronics um, and really only using CG to like accent stuff. There's a reason I keep bringing this movie up whenever it comes to special effects and for good reason. Even after 30 years, it still holds up. Before this, we saw glimpses. The first instance being the 1985 film Young Sherlock Holmes where a knight made of stained glass attacks a priest. The next big leap came in James Cameron's classic sequel Terminator 2 Judgment Day where the method was utilized to great effect to create a full character from more than just one scene. I once saw a movie where they actually uh, they filmed a, a real lizard and I think they pasted things on the lizard to make it look like dinosaur-like. <laughs> and they just like filmed the lizard against like the the humans and pretended that lizard was the dinosaur. This was a million times better than that. Uh, and one of the reasons is because there's a perfect balance of practical effects and CGI. So I love the shit out of this movie. I had the behind the scenes book, a big picture book, all the behind the scenes stuff, them making the dinosaurs. Man, I've watched the like Netflix thing. Yeah, I know I'm watching this on my mobile phone. Um, but I mean, still the the egg hatching dinosaur. Uh, it does look animatronic, but it still looks really, really good. They went so, they did so good on this, like, they're using the mixture of CGI and animatronics to really good effects in this film. And it still looks really, really good even today. Just love it. Honestly, of all the kind of quote unquote classic movies from that era, I think this and Terminator 2 have somehow found a way to still, 30 some years later, look phenomenal. I mean, this movie looks better than the sequels, in my opinion. I would put this one over even the Jurassic World films as far as the effects. And it's a combination of, I mean, genius is is, is a pale word, but uh, Stan Winston's creature effects and, of course, uh, ILM and, and their next-level CGI work when it was still, like, barely a thing. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. So this is like, see, this is like the debut of, like, CGI that we're, like, what the f***? It looks f***ing real. Like, you, you, you get confused. It's like nothing's ever looked that good. Yeah, they're fine. The um, When they do the animatronic rubber dinosaur faces, those mostly look better. And there are a couple times where maybe they're doing a mix of both, and those, those work pretty good. So, I mean, good on this movie for, I think, ushering in this era of uh, special effects and, and things like that. I've... I said before in the podcast, like, put that shit on the screen, man. Put all that money in special effects. I love it. I want to see, I want to see dinosaurs the size of planets chewing on the sun. I want to see, (laughs) I want to see superheroes doing crazy, tearing holes in reality, punching each other with giant rubber fists or whatever is that happens in superhero movies. I haven't seen a superhero movie in a long time. If you go watch those making of features, there's a really cool bit where Spielberg is breaking down two scenes in particular. One is the the Triceratops scene, and that's actually really cool. You see him like kind of telling the story to the people in the room, just just off his head, and it's really impressive. And the other one is, of course, the uh, the the T Rex scene with the cups of water and everything like that. And it's if you're a fan of the film and you're a film nerd like me, it's really interesting and I highly recommend checking it out. ILM was the biggest innovators regarding special effects at the time, and when they were tasked to develop the effects for Jurassic Park, the first approach was the obvious one, stop motion. Phil Tippett, who had proven himself as an amazing successor to the likes of Ray Harryhausen, was tapped to bring the dinosaurs to life using stop motion animation 
or I guess I should say go motion since that was a technique he had developed during the film Dragon Slayer. However, Dennis Muren of ILM was convinced that CGI would be the way to go. So before ILM got involved, they were originally going to use stop motion and animatronics for all the dinosaurs. And on that same DVD slash Blu-ray, you can actually see some of the footage uh, from the kitchen scene with the velociraptors done in that style. And it's fine, but yeah, it's Stan Winston, so the, the raptors look amazing, but it's the, the technology used, it just clearly looks like they're using stop-motion animation. I mean, it, it's not it's a little jerky, it's a little off-putting. It just doesn't look quite right. You know how they, they tricked, they had like a, they had like the, wor- the best, the world's premier stop-motion artist, and he was going to make this a stop-motion dinosaur movie. And he had guys working for him doing some stuff with computers. And they're like, we can do it all on computers. And he was like, you can't emote with a computer. Like, you can't emote like I can with my hands when I animate a little dinosaur. And they literally, like, tricked. They made a little test of the T-Rex. And when the producers were, like, in to, like, check stuff out, they just, like, left it on the screen. And they were, and producers were like, "What the fuck is that?" And they're like, "Oh, that." And the guy was like, "That's nothing. They're doing stuff with computers. Look at my stop motion." You know, I think later on he went to on to admit that he was wrong. But you know, sometimes you can't see. You think you think the way that you do things. You've worked so hard, you can't see like the new path. And so they, but but man, everyone was so blown away. And when they got the. Uh smoothness of the motions through ILM and we're able to get like musculature movement and everything like that they knew okay this is the way to go and it's really interesting to see how a lot of the um, kind of old time effects people looked at that as like the turning point of of when their industry started to change significantly uh, very cool kind of like just movie trivia behind the scenes stuff uh, definitely worth checking out. CGI was not the go-to tool in the early 90s so convincing the filmmakers that this is going to work was part of the process Starting with a walking skeletal structure of a T-Rex, it wowed the suits at Universal to allow them to create a proof of concept, meaning that they were going to give you money to blow their socks off. That footage had skin textures, exterior lighting, and even an added layer of muscles over the skeleton to give more realism. And if I told you that this footage did not impress those same suits, you would be flabbergasted. Which is why I am here to say that it's totally impressed them, and it's why they won an Oscar for their hard work. Unfortunately, as Phil Tippett put it, his art form became extinct because of this. Sadly. This movie was just unbelievable at the time. I mean, I can't... I mean, it looked like they made dinosaurs. Some of it's practical. I mean, it's... It, the, the, the T-Rex especially, it's just... The, I mean, do you know what they did to make the T-Rex? I mean... There's a part of the movie where they say, you have a T-Rex? And Richard Attenborough's like, we have a T-Rex. And they're like, say it again, we have a T-Rex? They literally built a T-Rex. They made a four and a half ton animatronic Tyrannosaurus Rex that was 40 feet long and animated it and skinned it and painted it. They had a T-Rex. But, you know, you got to give credit where credit is due. That friggin' T-Rex... Is, is animatronic. I mean, that thing, like, you see out by the flipped-over Jeep, like, they built that whole T-Rex. There's a big, soggy t- uh, T-Rex that was made of, like, foam, and then it rained on it, so it, like, was just, like, soaked in water and weighed, like, tons. Like, And it kept 
making the T-Rex malfunction and like the foam started to get rotten in spots and it, it, it you know, just not, it was, it was a bitch. It was just as much of a pain as the shark in Jaws was, but God, does it look great. I mean, it is just to this day that 30 years ago, that Jurassic, that T-Rex in Jurassic Park is just uh, is stunning, stunning. As I've mentioned before in numerous episodes, uh, sometimes less is more, and this is a great example of them striking that balance. They only use CG when necessary, and because they blend it in with the use of animatronics and even puppetry at times, uh, it makes it feel that much more real. Anyways, yeah, special effects, they're not, they're not bad, they're just, they're old, but they're like the beginning of what comes later, which is sweet, awesome CGI that I will eat up with a spoon for the rest of time. No, except for the, the baby raptor hatchling. <laughs> that looked goofy as hell. <laughs> that was that was pretty silly looking. It was a mix of animatronic and CGI. And you know, you look back at that movie, and, you know, and it's you know, it's the special effects is still better than some of the movies of today. You know, and one of the most effective scenes is where we get to see the sick Triceratops up close. If that scene was done today, they would definitely use CG and it wouldn't look nearly as good. Even some of the later Jurassic Park movies don't feel as real as that first one. And that was that was a pretty landmark movie in terms of special effects. It's it still is. If you only watch one making of DVD extra, watch the one for Jurassic Park. It is unbelievable what they did. We also get some clever foreshadowing early on with the T-Rex skeleton and the baby raptor eggs in the lab. We're out of a job. Don't you mean extinct? Oh, we're going on a tour. So they get in, they start taking the ride. He's going to show them how, they, how he does it. And they get this like Disney tour like uh, ride. Like you, like you seen at Disney where they show you the, they, if you see like, I think it's like an, a Disney MGM tour or like a backstage tour or the kind of thing where you do sit in seats and they sort of kind of rotate you around the building and you can see where they are actually doing stuff. So John Hammond is supposed to interact with himself on every time this video ride takes off. Are we to believe that John Hammond, who is in the video, but then also is supposed to be there in real life? Is supposed to have a... Is he going to be there for every ride? Is, is this happening on the hour, every hour, every day? Is he going to have a stand-in? How How is this going to work? Is he like, yes, every guest that comes in, every dino that's born, every guest that comes in, I do the little tour. Oh, I need a pick. Oh, that hurt, John. Hello, John. Oh, hello, John. Uh, hello, John. Oh, <laughs> hello, John. Uh, oh, another John. Hello. And the way that the movie explains the plot holes of how they managed to clone dinosaurs is also pretty clever. A park of real dinosaurs. And the first thing they do is put them in a shitty video-based ride. <laughs> I mean, this is the way of theme parks. We all know it to be true. <laughs> but yeah, you have to sit in a shit ride to explain it. Uh, I, yeah, if I, to be honest, I would want to break out the ride too and go ask the scientists loads of questions. Now, I've only been to, Dis to Disney a couple times, but this is such a good... The Mr. DNA is such a good representation of, like, the shit you see at Disneyland. The, like, uh, Epcot Center rides and the stars that, you know, this is the body. Or, like, uh, you know, let's look at the world of tomorrow. Like, 
The whole Mr. DNA sequence is pure genius. I love Mr. DNA, but why, why the f*** can't he say dinosaur? Dinosaur? Why does he say dinosaur? Second favorite character is uh, the Mr. DNA cartoon. Is that, is that a thing? Are there people in this world that say dinosaur? Especially the way he says dinosaurs. Where are you from? Who is this person? Greg Burson? Where are you from? Dinosaur DNA. It would take us years to look at the whole strand. It's that long. Uh, we use a complete DNA of a frog. And we use the... Fill the... Holes to complete the... Code. Whew. I'll be honest, I toyed with the idea of constantly referring to them as dinosaurs through this, but I knew there was no way I was going to be able to commit to that. Dinosaur? Dinosaurs. I mean, I tried to say um, dinoology or dinologists a few times, and I don't even know how consistent I was there. Dino DNA. And the best joke, you're looking at the scientist, Gennaro, that goes, this is incredible, John. Is this our... Are these uh, uh, scientists, are they uh, auto-erotic, auto-erotic? No, no, no. Uh, No animatronics. The lawyer asks if the characters are auto-erotica. I I didn't know what that meant as a kid, and now I get it. So on the ride, uh, one of the weird things that I've never noticed before, one of the very first faces you see when they show the doctors is Dr. Wu. Uh, They don't introduce him. Hey, we meet Wong from Law & Order SVU. Good to see you. You show up in later movies and things. Um, Like, we see him behind glass, and then they get out, and they go uh, into, you know, the area. And he's talking to them for a while. No one ever says his name. Now, I think the main point of this film is probably something to do with, like, the hubris of man. There's a scene where they're all visiting the hatching of the... the, the eggs and bd wong who plays the lead scientist is like oh it wasn't that difficult to prevent them from mating and malcolm's like not that difficult you know and he's sort of sort of putting together here what the main problem is with with this whole park hey this is an all-female park eh? zip oh well thank goodness these these dinosaurs can't sorry dinosaurs can't go out and procreate in the wild because we're all female but life uh finds a way you know this is the the famous life uh finds a way line life uh finds a way life uh finds a way uh life finds a way i'm confused here did jeff goldblum say this first or did he steal that from captain kirk i feel like that's a captain kirk line this is probably one of my most used quotes ever if i just kind of don't feel like quantifying something and just say life finds a way. Done. Easy. But sandwiched around sort of a visit to the raptor pen, which is an interesting conversation, and we get a proper introduction to Robert Muldoon, who's amazing also in this film. So uh, as they're eating lunch, it dawns on me, they never explain why Malcolm is here. Uh, Obviously, Malcolm exists in the book for a reason, which we'll get to on a different episode. And I mean, I'm not sure why he's here. He's a, a chaos I guess he's just like 
the smartest guy in the world or whatever, or one of the smartest guys in the world. So, like, let's bring this guy in, uh, you know, rock star, genius guy. But at no point in time in this movie do they ever mention why a theoretical mathematician was brought to this island. We get Malcolm basically talking about, you know, you know, talking about the ethics of the situation. And there's the, of course, they go and they get lunch and we get spared no expense number two. And, <laughs> and basically this is where Malcolm gives his ethics lecture and the famous line. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. I like the uh, the lawyer guy who gets bitten in half by the T-Rex, uh, Gennaro. Uh, I really liked his take on the park, which is, yeah, this is a park where we can charge as much as we want. We can, we can charge rich people to get eaten by dinosaurs. That's the correct take on Jurassic Park. Hammond is the villain who is saying... Everyone in the world has the right to enjoy being eaten by these dinosaurs. So they have this lunch. Ch- Chilean sea bass looks delightful. Uh, and they tell Hammond how dangerous everything that he's doing is. And I love the heightening of the stakes. As soon as they're done being like, what you've done is an affront to science and God. And will end in, surely end in disaster and bloodshed. Uh, some guy comes over and is like, Ham, Mr. Hammond, your your grandchildren are here. And they go, Grandpa! And they go run, and you're like, oh shit, these kids are gonna, gonna these kids are gonna die. What the f***, man? That's cold-blooded. Oh, we got Wayne Knight here, uh, who most people know as Newman from Seinfeld, playing Dennis Nedry, and you know what? He's great, too. I'm not going to get in another financial argument with you. Well, if you can uh, find someone that can uh, run links up between uh, four or five network machines and debug like, oh, I don't know, about 500,000, uh, uh, 50,000 lines of code. Well, then for the price that you uh, that I quoted you, I'm, oh, I'd like to see them. I'd like to see that. I would actually like to see that. Everyone in this movie is great. I love the photo of uh, Oppenheimer on Ned's workstation. Just like, welcome to hubris. I totally believe that Wayne Knight is some slovenly programmer. Ned is a great hacker character uh, from the 90s. Like, we had a lot of those guys, like Boris from Goldeneye. Kind of time where he just had to have a Hawaiian shirt and, and look flustered be twiddling a pen. Nedry's got like a little voice activated like microphone and they they spit a bunch of jargon at you and like you could do that today. Today computers are ubiquitous but like you can also throw another computer guy and they can spit some jargon at you but the funny thing is about the dated characters is that the jargon that they use are words that we have then subsequently become familiar with and so uh, you know like saying network machines and like debugging lines of code before it would have been like i can get a headache let them deal with it this you're like i know what that is like i I could go to a coding boot boot camp myself like it's not but these seemed like these were like mavericks or like no one knew what this stuff was but now it's like a third of what we do as a country (laughs) One of my favorite subplots is the entire bit with Nedry uh, working for the rival corporation to try and steal the embryos. I always thought this could have been explored more in future sequels. Like, 
I'd love to see a movie about uh, Dotson, you know, the guy in the hat. Like, what's he up to? Never mind. So we find out that Dennis Nedry uh, is going to steal company secrets and he's going to take dinosaur embryos to the uh, competing uh, company. When Ned uh, does his like timer thing and he's like waiting for things to shut off, um, he specifically is like looking at his watch and he looks at what would normally be a camera. Um, It has no lens of any kind. It has a red light. It has a flat front face and a red light. What was he avoiding if it has no visual sensors of any kind? Now, looking back at this movie, I think a cool idea for a sequel would have been a parallel storyline taking place during the events of this original film, uh, but on another part of the island. Um, I just would love to see more of this world explored and not just the aftermath of it. Um, overall, I like this movie. I, I love the first half of this movie, and I, yeah, I'm okay on the second half of the movie. Oh, so we get the grandchildren who arrive, Tim and Lex. Like, at, at the 40-minute mark, the kids get introduced, and then the movie just starts dragging ass like it has nowhere to go and is more or less kind of just like a generic disaster kind of movie. Like, it moves along all right but it is just like all right we're just moving from one little crisis to the other and then you're getting bonding between alan grant avowed child hater alan grant and these two little uh not little (laughs) i mean they're smaller than adults hammond says something along the lines of that uh the attractions in his new park will drive the kids out of their mind Grant asks, and what are those? And Ellie says, small versions of adults, honey. Very funny. Very funny. Yeah, the kids, Hammond bringing the kids in the movie, that's, apart from me just not liking the movie as much after that happens, within the logic of the movie, feels so strange to me. Yeah, I get it. He's like real bullish on his park. But there is no way that one person is the first person that has died here. There are definitely, they are knee deep in worker blood here at Jurassic Park coming along to the opening. And then he brings his grandkids in there and then just has them in uh, cars controlled by a computer program that uh, Samuel L. Jackson has repeatedly told you is not working and is buggy. And they're doing this minutes before a giant storm is supposed to hit the island that is getting the storm that is so big. All the other workers have to leave. That's when he brings his kids in for a little tour, his grandkids in for a tour of the park. No, come on, man. The kids being there is less believable than the dinosaurs being there. That's, that's, I think that's my one big nitpick. Do I get one? (laughs) Do we all get one nitpick rant per movie? And now that the whole cast has been assembled, I'm kind of looking at their outfits and I'm like, yep, this is 1993. Oh, look, an interactive (laughs) CD-ROM. Oh, I love the 90s when we finally moved on from floppy disks. What an amazing time that was. You kids don't know how good you got it. Man, these are some good times. All right, so we're riding in electric vehicles on tracks. Okay, but what happens if the power goes out? Granted, we haven't done a tour yet, but you guys must have thought, what happens if the power goes out? Shouldn't these have a a backup something? I mean, I know it's 93. I would think you would have some sort of contingency plan just in case. 
We get spared no expense number three with the uh, self-driving cars. And I don't remember Samuel Jackson's character uh, so funny that he's like the announcements. Can you imagine who if he was doing the announcements at your work, Samuel Jackson? Uh, classic line, hold on to your butts. He's always got a cigarette butt. Speaking of butts, hanging out of his mouth. Hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts. Favorite quote? Hold on to your butts by uh, Samuel Jackson. Of course, that's like a that's a classic, classic line from this movie. The voice you're now hearing is Richard Kiley. We spared no expense. That's four. Uh, this, this might just be me. Who who, who the hell is Richard Kiley? You mentioned uh, Richard Kiley voicing uh, the the tour. You may know him from such things as Kismet, uh, No Strings, I Had a Ball, Redhead, Man of La Mancha, and The Incomparable Max. I have never heard of any of these. Have have you heard of any of these? Who the hell is Richard Kiley? Richard Kiley is a stage actor who won a couple Tony Awards. Uh, he's best known as the creator of the character of Don Quixote in The Man of La Mancha. So if you ever heard that song, uh, The Impossible Dream, he's the first guy who sang it. Oh, he was also on an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, they go through the classic Jurassic Park gate, iconic. What do they keep in there, King Kong? Uh, the big gates, uh, they go through, and, and Ian says, uh, what do they got in there, uh, King Kong? And the, and the gate is, it is, it is based on the King Kong. Then you see in a King Kong, the same gate, he's got a gate. They made it. And they said, well, people get the reference, and we'll say, we'll just have the character say it. Love the Dilophosaurus is like a non-omen. Like, he's mentioned, it's super boring, and like, this, what a scene. What a scene. For it to be such a little shithead later in the film, what a scene to not show it now, to not give it away. It also is so funny that they go on the tour they don't see any dinosaurs because that's what happens when you go to the zoo that is exactly what happens you go to the zoo half the things are closed or it's like feeding time and you're like I can't see and then you see oh I saw a sea lion or something and like I actually saw it but like you know you don't see the majority of the animals are just fucking off somewhere or it's their nap time it's never and that's such a hilarious grounding joke they can't see shit and to make it boring to like add to the boringness of this ride like jurassic park right now feels like it would have failed anyways because no one's seeing anything so they're going through they're going through the park and they're not seeing any creatures coming up to the fences which uh, it tracks. I, I went to the zoo yesterday with my kids, and half the animals were either asleep with their backs to us or um, avoiding the sporadic rain that was coming down. So yeah, I, I completely feel the pain of the people on this tour, and I'd probably get out to see the the huge pile of um, Triceratops shit as well. Uh, uh, you do uh, eventually plan on having uh, dinosaurs uh, on your dino tour. I really do hate that man. While they're uh, driving around, we get these wonderful uh, Malcolm sort of pickup lines towards Dr. Sadler, where he's trying to explain uh, chaos theory with the, the droplets of water going down the hand. You know, as we're continuing in the vehicles, Malcolm is still hitting on, on Dr. Sattler on Ellie and still not as creepy as Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters. But anyways, his, his flirtation with Ellie Sattler, I thought, 
as portrayed in the movie, was good. This is the kind of thing I think in other movies can come across really poorly, where you have one of your main characters being like a sex pest to the other person. He was flirting in a way that is absolutely, in my mind, appropriate level of flirting. He's holding her hand, he's touching her hair, and it's kind of creepy on 2020 standards, but also, I mean, he's laying it on pretty thick there. And They also... I think nicely avoided some sort of big, like, I don't know, chest thumping, dick waving contest between uh, the <laughs> chaotician and the uh, dinoologist Alan Grant over Ellie Sadler. Like, that would have been gross and weird. It was just, it felt really like <laughs> also super low stakes and not relevant to the plot, just a thing that was happening. But it was. Ian Malcolm's fooling with Ellie. She's, you know, not encouraging him, but not discouraging him. Later on, Ian Malcolm asks Alan Grant, like, hey, do you know if she's single? And he kind of gives him a look. And then genius doctor, chaotician Ian Malcolm is like, oh, I get it. You two are fucking. All right. Okay, that's it. And then there's nothing else to it. It's, Go it's Jeff Goldblum. I, I can't I can't dislike him. I don't know. I've spent my whole thing talking about that one situation. Um, it was just nice to have a relationship handled in a mostly adult mature way as opposed to it turning into some kind of like high drama for no high school drama for no reason. Save that shit for the CW for my CW superhero shows. Can we all just stop and appreciate that the Triceratops is contained by a four foot, maybe three foot tall, sparsely barbed wire fence. That's uh, that's some real solid security. They all hop out of the vehicles. They go down to the Triceratops, and this is where we really get our first animatronic dinosaur. And they did a damn good, damn good job with it. The scene with the Triceratops. This is actually the only animatronic that they shipped out to Hawaii to film with on set, and it's. This, it's just remarkable because, I mean, most people are going to be focused on the Triceratops, right, when you're seeing this. But if you look at the actors, like, uh, Ellie is legitimately weeping um, as she's looking at this. I mean, she's a paleontologist, right? She's been studying dinosaurs and, and bones, racing bones. Uh, I mean, she's a paleobotanist, but I mean, she's been digging up bones like her, her entire adult life. And to see her get emotional about it, it was really, uh, it really resonated with me. So this whole little side plot of why they they stop is the trike, the, the trike as they call it, is sick. And there's West Indian lilac everywhere, and they're trying to figure out. Oh, every six weeks they seem to get sick. We don't know what it is. Oh, maybe they're eating the berries. Oh, they're not eating eating the berries. According to the book, if I remember correctly, they were eating the berries by accident, uh, but they still were. I don't think they ever actually answered it in the movie and I remember it bothering me for a long time as being like oh this is an important plot of why the dinosaurs are getting sick every six weeks and then nothing ever came of it maybe it's a deleted scene maybe I don't think I missed it on this rewatch but uh, I know when I read the book they answered it do or do not ceratops there is no triceratops plus having Grant like lean on the triceratops as it's breathing has given us one of the greatest gifts of all time. I, and I've used it frequently in our Discord server all the time, just because I love it. This movie is very gifable. 
Not only is there a hurricane in the story, but during filming, the cast and crew actually got stuck in a literal storm. And the weather was really shitty the whole time they were filming. I mean, it was raining a lot. If I'm not mistaken, they ended up using some of the footage of the actual storm in the movie. Kid pops out with the goggles. The cars all stop. Boo! Where'd you get those? Ah, uh, they were under my seat. The goggles were and are still my childhood dream toy. Oh, cool! Night vision goggles. These things are massive on his head. I, I'm sure they only weigh 25 pounds. Are they heavy? Yeah. Then they're expensive. Put them back. Can someone 3D print those for VR so I can play Beat Saber? All right, so the tropical storm moves in. Everyone has to go back. And from the point where the cars stop in front of the T-Rex paddock to when the car falls into the tree, it might be my favorite scene in all of movie history. It is a tour de force. Everything about it is amazing. T-Rex stops are this film's equivalent of the Jaws theme. We have the vibrations, uh, the the tremor causing the water to vibrate. You needed, you know, a, a score. And you needed to convince someone that that score was going to be, like, terrifying and effective. But, like, no. Just a little bit of water and some stomps. And it's, like, the same thing. The, the sound engineering is just doing so much work in this film. Oh, man, here he comes. It's the big boy. The, the noise of the booms and looking at the cup still sounds jingles down my spine. Boom. Boom. Oh man, the thumping when you know the T-Rex is getting close. That is, oh, that's iconic. It's been parodied so many times now. Oh, it's so, it's so, so good. Oh, the T-Rex paddock and there's the goat. This movie is just incredible. Oh, hey, look, the goat's gone. Oh shit, the goat's gone. Oh, hang on, wait, wait a minute. Where's the goat gone? Where's the goat? We have, you know, the sound of the rain and the goat. The goat leg, man. The goat leg. The goat just comes out the floor, right? How long has that goat been on that platform underground at that point for? Like, it's on the other side of the fence as well. So how how did they get it out there? You know, I didn't think of it until this rewatch, but the f*** did the goat come from? I mean, did is there a loading dock that they dropped it off and then it goes over a conveyor belt and then pops? Like, how, how, how did you had to get the goat there? I mean... Is it just like, is, do, you reckon, do you reckon there's like a series of underground catacombs which they use for goat herding for some of the bigger animals? These are the real questions that Jurassic Park poses in life. And then the, 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 the sound of the, the music is sort of this ominous music. And, and... and then the big swallow just like, gulp, done, goat, gone. We don't know how big the T-Rex is until this point. And, and then we have the boom, right? We are, and, and we're like, what's going on? And then you, you cut to the, the electric fence and you see the, that the T-Rex is ripping it apart because it's not electrified anymore. And then just, it's just amazing. The beginning of the T-Rex attack, it's so scary, but it's so good. Easily the second scariest moment in the film, but it is like the most impactful moment of the film because it is at this point that they know that they had f***ed up. Oh, uh, why would you turn on the f***ing massive flashlights? You are the worst sister ever. They're stuck in the car. The car's got, it's just all windows. <laughs> and I know the storm is like necessary to the plot, but like the water on the glass makes you think about how it's just 
glass. The T-Rex is on the other side of the stupid glass. So a little mishap in filming that I never paid attention to before, like ever in, I don't know, the 40 or 50 viewings of this movie, the T-Rex is to the right of Grant and Malcolm's Explorer, and then it walks to the left, and then Grant comments that his vision, its vision is based on movement. Uh, the girl finds a flashlight, and then the scene goes back to Grant's vehicle, where the T-Rex is on the right once again. I mean, I get it, right? The lawyer's scared, but why would he run to the shitter? You know, did he, act, I mean... They actually imply that he actually needs a shit, and then when it all falls over, he's got his trousers down. Like, did he actually shit himself? Or did, I, I always just assumed that he'd gone to hide, but then, yeah, he's got his pants down. It's just like, ah, oh, mate, like, shit, yeah, no wonder why he left kids on the run. That would be really embarrassing. I'd rather get eaten by a T-Rex and fucking shit my pants in front of two kids. The bone-crushing sounds as the Rex swings the lawyer around. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to say, the lawyer getting eaten is just fantastic. It is so good. Uh, I don't even did they utilize this in any of the future films like I I remember a lot of vicious T-Rex scenes I don't remember any of them putting this much emphasis on bone crushing at any point in time that anyone got violently eaten also Dr. Grant and Ian Malcolm they they do spend a a couple like a a full minute or two watching that T-Rex attack that other car before they do anything but it's like yeah not a lot of prep for this situation. Don't move a muscle. Statue still, Bing. Statue still. This whole T-Rex scene, it is memorable. It is one of the best moments, in my opinion, of, of just cinematic history. Practical effects, CGI. They have a physical T-Rex there. Animatronic, granted, but, you know, it's still everything. Looks amazing. Chef's kiss. Mwah. T-Rex is so scary and so loud. And the, the, it's so funny. There is something about his... There's a part of his roar that does sound like a guy going... <laughs> Everything about this scene is amazing. I love how Hammond asks Muldoon to go get his grandkids... He, he doesn't ask him to get anyone else. Malcolm, Grant, whatever the f*** the lawyer's name was. And he's just, okay, would you mind go get my grandchildren? Sure. Hey, look, it's Fat Solid Snake. Ned 007, the super spy. <laughs> super freak. Super freak. Why is Ellie in the IT room? Where has she been, like, this entire time? She was out looking at the Triceratops. There's nothing that ever said that she came back, Right. And we've already established that she's not a computer person. So why is she here in one of the most important rooms of the entire island? Uh, I also always remember the sound of all the fences being down on the computer. Very silly. And then, of course, the ah, ah, ah. You didn't say the magic word. Ah, 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 ah. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. You didn't say the magic word. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. That lives with me literally to this day. And I'd probably say it about four or five times at work. <laughs> People don't say please for shit. <laughs> oh, I'm such a Something I've never considered before. Why doesn't Ned know his way around the island? Like, yeah, sure, he hit the sign. 
But if you've been here for a while, shouldn't you know something about the lay of the land? Like, they imply that he's been here. For a minute. Needs a little Dilophosaur. Here, stick. Stick, stupid. I don't want to get extinct. Oh, Dennis, you poor old bastard. So close to it so far. Tell you what, though, playing fetch with a dinosaur is a really bad idea because it'll probably just spit acid in your face. Dennis Nedry gets out of his car, he just goes down the hill, a little slip. There's a little sound, a little slip sound effect. Whoop, I lose his glasses. I can, afford, I can afford new glasses. You know, for the 90s, I didn't notice a lot of odd, overused sound effects. There was one, and it always sticks out to me. And it's after Nedry goes off the road and he's gonna go down and winch the Jeep off the. Um, trunk that he's somehow stuck on that doesn't physically work how he's stuck but right when he slips you get the 1990 sound effect of him falling down the hill it's not bad it's there not like mortal Kombat sound effects but you know it sticks out right the tree in the car is just an amazing scene and i just absolutely love it where they're trying to get away from it and it's falling after them they get to the very bottom and then it just creeps over and then the little boy goes we're, we're back in the car <laughs> it's just it's so good i just love the way it all plays out probably probably my second favorite part of the film i love how everything just kind of deteriorates towards the end it's just murphy's law anything that can go wrong does go wrong and the situation just gets worse and worse Muldoon and Ellie find Malcolm. They're able to rescue him. So when they can't reach the cars by radio, uh, Ellie and Muldoon uh, take a gas-powered jeep to go find them. Um, that's where they discover the you know, sort of the wreckage of the cars and and everything that's going on. And they they pick up Malcolm and they go looking. Uh, and this is where we get that famous uh, jeep scene where the T-Rex is chasing the jeep. Picking the best action sequence in this movie is easier than picking which child I would want to die. This is crazy. How do you pick between the T-Rex escape from the pen chasing, wrecking the Jeep and all that? I mean, that is one of probably the most famous scenes in the history of film. You've got the raptors attack in the kitchen uh, where they're tapping their feet and opening the doors and everything. And you're kind of just grasping how scary these fucking things are. And then that whole chase that goes all the way to where the T-Rex and the raptors fight. I mean, come on, man. Oh, God. I guess if I had to... Holy shit. Uh, I will pick the T-Rex pen scene, but specifically when they're in the Jeep with an injured Dr. Malcolm and the T-Rex is chasing after them. He's, you know, faster, faster, must go faster. As a kid, that was like piss pants town. Rexy shows back up, must go faster. Ah, T-Rex maxes out at 32 miles per hour. <laughs> My first car, which is a shitty old Citroen AX, could outrun that. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm not so scared of this anymore. You know, ten-year-old Bill was quite scared, but now I know that my shitty old Citroen could outrun it. My Honda Jazz is going to have no problem. Uh, and there's a line in there where uh, Malcolm says, "Must go faster." And actually, the next year, or I guess I don't know when they were filming, but the next year, Independence Day came out, and I guess you know Jeff Goldblum is basically playing the same character, you know, genius guy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, when they're escaping the alien mothership, he says to Will Smith, "Must go faster." must go faster. I thought that was a nice little thing he did there. You know, the entire time as, as we've been going along and seeing Malcolm's character, he, he seems to be the, char- the comic relief. He is definitely the comic relief. So Grant does a bunch of stuff and then remembers uh, that he had what is essentially a massive biological knife in his back pocket. 
I wish I had a pair of pants with back pockets big enough to just forget that there was a massive knife in them. Oh wait, I did. They were Jinkos and they don't make them anymore. There's a great scene where Hammond is just eating the ice cream that's melting because they have no power for the freezers. When Hammond and Ellie are sitting and just eating all the, the desserts that are melting, I love the chat that they have. Hammond gives his whole history of the flea circus and how it was fake and how it was contrived to you know, be something that it, that it wasn't, but Jurassic Park is different, and and they have control, and Ellie is able to see through that and go, no, th- they're not different, they are the same. Granted, you're not using mechanics to operate, you're, you're pretending that you have fleas, you have real dinosaurs, but it's still fake. You don't have control of the situation, and you never did. Uh, and he's telling the story about how he, the first time he came to America, he opened a flea circus, um, and this this score in this film is doing so much heavy lifting, and it's just it's just wonderful. So it's a very lovely, sad and lovely scene. And I believe that's where we get our last spared no expense. The spared no expense number five. The super slow scene showing a bunch of the paraphernalia, dinosaur paraphernalia that you could buy. Just like in Ghostbusters, the logos used throughout the story. Uh, but this one takes it a step further because you get actual products like lunch boxes, stuffed animals, and t-shirts. Yeah, I absolutely had most of that stuff. Like the stamp set, like the rubber stamp set, the vibrantly colored stuffed dinosaur toys. Also, the insidious genius of all the vehicles, all the little stuff with the Jurassic Park logo. They do, they make it feel like a, like a, like a theme park. Like, we're all familiar. Like, I don't know what a zoo theme park would feel like, but it does. Like, this and the cartoon DNA guy, like, it makes for good toys, but it also, like, it does make you feel like you're at a corporate branded uh, experience, like, tourist experience with all the little tags that say Jurassic Park, the little guy's hat says Jurassic Park, his little pink polo shirt says Jurassic Park, Jeep says Jurassic Park, everything says a little Jurassic Park. Why does he need a parking tag that also says it? Uh, This became even more meta when Universal Studios opened the Jurassic Park section of Islands of Adventure, uh, which is clearly modeled after what we see of the theme park in this movie. I don't want to get into it, but I will say that, like, the ice cream scene and a lot of the stuff that happens in, like, the visitor center, it's like, I want to go to, like, I want to go hang out in, like, a Jurassic Park-themed, like, hotel, or, like, I want to go there. I want to go to Jurassic Park. I want to go... I want to see what's on the menu, you know, besides the sea bass. I want to see, like, do they have chicken fingers? Are they called, like, dino fingers? Do the the menu items have dino themes to them? I hope so. I still have the Jurassic Park 2 cup, the raptor cup. Very cool stuff. So the kids and Grant uh, wake up with the brachiosaurus in the tree. Okay, this is the best part of the film, okay? And this really sparked my imagination as a kid because I just loved dinosaurs. I know, I know every f***ing body loved dinosaurs when they were kids. Yeah, even you, Frost. I know you love dinosaurs. But it's just the bit where they get into the tree and they can see them off in the distance and then they sing to the Brachiosaurus and the Brachiosaurus sing back. They fall asleep and they wake up with the one that's actually like eating the leaves under their feet. And uh, Tim's like, it's a Vegisaurus. And I'm thinking to myself, Vegisaurus, my ass, that thing could probably kill you by breathing on you. It weighs 85 tons. 85 tons. Just absolutely 
magical, the magic of the moment. And even the idea to me as a little kid of the possibility of that just being real was just incredible to me. I just loved it. Like, I would pay anything to live in that moment. Uh, you know, not, not the whole nearly getting eaten by a T-Rex and the whole car thing crashing on top of me first, but, you know, just to be in a tree while a brach- Brachiosaurus eats it breakfast. Oh, and I really don't want to get sneezed on either. That, that, that looks really gross. Yeah, maybe, maybe I don't want this. No, I think, I think I'll book that spa retreat in Greece instead. That seems much nicer. So while Grant and the kids are slowly making their way back, Grant discovers a nest, and... And we, and we learned that the dinosaurs are breeding in the wild. Earlier, we knew that they use frog DNA. Grant mentions that a specific frog can switch sexes here and there. Is it just that one frog? Did they use only that one frog's DNA in every dinosaur? And also, why, why the hell is Grant sniffing an egg? Okay, why did Grant, real-time people, why did Grant sniff the egg? Like, I'm not being funny, but he's not a fucking biologist. He's an archaeologist. He dig bones out of the ground. Why is he sniffing an old dinosaur egg? I don't want to yuck anyone's yums, but Grant... Grant has a weird kink. Um, I think I think he's got some sort of weird kink here, and it's a bit creepy. As they're headed back to the visitor center, uh, they encounter a stampede of Gallimimus, because this, the Gallimimus have been being chased by the T-Rex, and uh, they, they end up hiding behind a tree... Uh, a downed tree and then they watch as the t-rex catches and eats one of the gallimimus do you remember all the damaged dinosaur toys like where they had a little rubber piece of skin that you would just like pop off to show the authentic battle damage ah it's so cool and uh and sam neil or grant goes look at how it eats right and all i'm thinking is is he turning into his character from event horizon it's like, <laughs> I don't know if anyone's seen that movie. That is a movie. Whew. The scene with Grant, Tim, and Lex continuing to make their way back, and they're in the Gallimimus paddock. It, it still looks impressive, but also there, there's a small quote here that I still use, my, me and my friends still use to this day. When they're talking about how they change the direction that they're running with, they're, they're changing just like a flock of birds. Whenever I'm playing a game and a horde of enemies changes and is coming our way, either me or my friend Casey will say, they're flocking this way. So everything's gone to shit, and they're talking about shutting the systems down. Now, remember, this released in 1993. Y2K hadn't happened yet. The severity of shutting down a system and what might or might not happen when you restart is a pretty big deal at this time. If the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. Ma'am, people have just died, and Jeff Goldblum's just sitting here cracking a joke a minute. Not cool, Jeff. Not cool. Hammond is extremely adamant about not killing dinosaurs, no matter how many people they kill. Um, But his convincing reason for shutting the system down is because people are getting killed by the dinosaurs. She's going to go after him, and, and Muldoon's like, no, you can't just stroll down the road. Let me unlock this entire cabinet full of shotguns. Like, there's got to be ten shotguns there. Why doesn't everyone have one of those shotguns who's uh, alive still? Where Also, where are the rest of the staff? There were so many people. I guess everyone left on the boats. 
Most of the people got out on the boats. Most of the people got out of the there was, It's just these people left. Seems like no one has left in Jurassic Park except these four people. And why don't they all have a shotgun? Shotguns are easy to use. Okay? That's the whole point of a shotgun. Is that you just point it at stuff. Okay? And Muldoon's sitting on a... Are those his personal shotguns? It is only... I don't know. How far are we into the movie? We're, I don't know, like two-thirds of the way into the movie, if not further. This is the first time anyone mentions Dr. Wu's name. First time. Just remember that. We've already talked to this guy. We've seen him. He's been on screen. First time his name's ever mentioned. Oh, so <laughs> they, they come up to an electric fence, and I, I don't know if this would really happen. In real, I mean, I can't put myself in the situation, but I like to think that I would pull the same prank on the kids uh, when I approached and touched the electric fence to pretend to be completely electrified and scare the bejesus out of them. I'd like to think that I'd have enough humor in the same situation, you know, escaping a park full of deadly dinosaurs uh, that Grant did in that moment. Another weird thing that I noticed for the first time ever, as they're doing the fence climb, they do like a, a bottom up shot. Uh, Grant's shoes are immaculately clean. I gotta say, Timberlands are definitely worth the money if they're self-cleaning. Grant f***ing with the kids when they get to the electric fence at such a dad move without being a dad. Well done. I love everything about the fence scene. It kind of feels unnecessary at this point. So much has happened. So much is about to happen. But it is this point where you realize it's not just the dinosaurs they have to worry about. Like, how terrifying is this? And what a great way to sort of amp things up is that it's, no, it's not just the dinosaurs. It's also an electric fence that you have to worry about. Damn, that open shirt look of Malcolm makes me feel feelings that I probably shouldn't tell my wife about. Also, Muldoon, yeah, he knew that he knew his costume going in. He was not skipping leg day, all right? When he comes out that bunker, yeah, he's showing, he's showing the gams. And it's nice. Scariest moment. Hmm. There are actually a surprising amount of scary moments in the film that's made for, you know, all ages, even though it is full of dinosaur murder. Now, I remember the opening being terrifying. As with the best horror movies, it's often what you don't see that's the scariest. Uh, you know, there's nothing to fear but fear itself and all that. There were, there were parts in this movie that are really really scary i mean the whole thing with the raptors in the canteen is great but it's so freaking scary oh no the raptors got out nobody could have ever seen this coming also why the hell did mr samuel l jackson arnold not take a radio since we clearly have them but my one question is like because grant leaves them there to eat their food to go find the woman she tells him that the raptors have gone are out Instead of going back to get the kids, who are just in the room behind him, he goes and gets he goes down into the basement thing and gets some guns and leaves the kids knowing that there's raptors roaming about. It's just like, Grant, man, what are you doing? <laughs> you f***ing dickhead. Go get the kids first. Get the kids first, man. The kids are getting chased through the kitchen. <laughs> They're getting chased by raptors. The grown-ups are getting ready to go hunt the raptors. They say, oh, it's only two raptors because one's contained. Are you sure it's contained? And it says, yeah, yeah, unless they learn how to open doors why don't you think they could open door they have hands pretty much they've already escaped out of like a whole cages why do you think a door is is keeping them inside because heads up 
They know how to open doors, okay? That's the good thing about um, Steven Spielberg. He he knows how to create tension in a scene, you know? He knows how to mix action, adventure, comedy, suspense, all in one movie. And, you know, the guy, the guy is a master of uh, the blockbuster. And he was at the top of his game back then. And so the last 10 minutes are basically a, a horror film where they're trying to escape Michael Myers, except, you know, Michael Myers is the, is the Raptors. Muldoon tells Ellie to run. This is where they're going to, like, switch all the power back on. The music is tense, and lest you forget, we have no idea what the f*** is running from. What a another great setup for the Raptors. Like, we've already got the cow thing and, like, the whack sound effects. Oh, no. Not the cow. And now we have a dude with a shotgun and, like, this chick who's just running for her life. And it's convincing acting. I really like this sequence. Clever girl. So, Muldoon, who knows the most about the raptors, he is well aware of how they hunt. He explained in great detail of how they hunt earlier in the film, proceeds to forget everything about that when it's most useful to him. We're being hunted. Wait, I've got her. Clever girl. I can tell you the stupidest moment when, forgive me, I'm blanking on names again, but the supposed raptor expert, Crocodile Dundee. When Crocodile Dundee decides he's going to go take care of the raptors and, and, and distract them while Dr. Sadler runs for the generator, this jackass brings out a gun that requires to be put together and does not start to put the gun together until he's been spotted by the raptors. What kind of expert i'm gonna go shark hunting and i'm gonna put the cage together once i've chummed the waters you f you deserve to get eaten by raptors this is ridiculous fire him well get his body parts together put him in a bag and fire that he is terrible that's definitely the stupidest moment it makes me mad to this day it's just like what are you what are you doing what are you doing that's bullshit <laughs> the clever girl line still just lives with me to this day uh it's something i say all the time to my wife and she fucking hates it <laughs> i say you keep a marriage going strong people really you annoy your wife a lot of course that scene in the rain where the t-rex breaks through the electric fence and attacks the tour is pretty intense the scariest scene though has to be when ellie is running from the raptors after getting the power back up and running so we reset the whole power everything and everything's good but we now have to run to a maintenance shed on the other side of the compound to reset the breakers this this seems like a horrible design who the fuck designed this park scariest moment uh, the raptor poking through the wires right after Ellie finds the disembodied arm of Samuel L. Jackson. Intense stuff. Best sequence. Uh, the children's escape scene. It's so wild. It's this, uh, you know, murderer in your house, like, hunting you down. Scariest moment. You know, as a kid, I would say the scariest moment was probably the kitchen scene. Just the idea of the two kids in there by themselves and the raptors coming and there's like, there's nothing you can do. They got out by like sheer luck. And uh, it was it was pretty terrifying for a child. I mean, I, you know, horror movies didn't really bother me. I was watching zombie movies and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and shit like that when I was seven years old. So that stuff never really scared me. But for me, it's like, you know, times 20 because they're velociraptors, these killing machines. 
when Tim and Lex go to hide in the kitchen from the Raptors, this is right where the movie transitions from science fiction to horror. This is why I don't keep ladles in my house. You never know when you're going to get attacked by raptors, and honestly, I can't risk being betrayed by a ladle. Oh, we know the third raptor is contained unless they figure out how to open doors. Well, we already know that they're problem-solving creatures. Guess what? They're... I had a cat that knew how to open doors. The raptor is going to figure this shit out. Um, and this is such a fun sequence, you know. Just remember, as I just remember being younger and seeing, you know, the whole like, oh my god, the raptor's gonna get the kid, and then the raptor hits the reflection, and it's like, oh shit, that is so good. Ooh, a Unix system. I know this. Nobody knows what a Unix system is. I love early 1990s movies grasp on computers and technology. It's absolutely hilarious. It's her great hacking moment. She knows the Unix system or whatever. So we've got a 12-year-old hacker that somehow knows how to manage this cumbersome computer system? It's a made-up thing. And even the graphics where it's all moving around in like a 3D space, it's just horseshit. That's never existed. So get over yourself. No one knows what it is. Doesn't. It's not real. You just luckily clicked on the right box. In the book, I don't know if you guys know, they give all the stuff to do to the big brother and then there's a little sister. But they flipped it up. They said, big sister, little brother, he knows about dinosaurs. She knows about the computers. So they divide the work, and so it's not just a useless character. Both kids get to do something fantastic. Also, while she's trying to figure this out and lock the doors, why the hell is Tim just standing behind her and slapping the chair? Why doesn't he grab the gun and hand it to Grant or Ellie to shoot the big goddamn dinosaur that's breaking in from the other side? doing a reverse alien they're crawling through the ceiling to get away from the raptors and one pops up pops the whole panel up with lex on the panel it drops down the panel drops down she drops down not all the way she catches on the rim but you can see down below her the raptor like falling to the floor and then getting itself composed and he pulls her up just it's like getting up and like tries to yip at her snap at her leg man oh there's a scene where they're escaping the raptors in the end where they're they're sort of in the uh, they're they're going through the ventilation or the the drop ceiling or something like that, um, and the raptors are kind of jumping up at them. Now, when the raptor pops his head up through the roof and Grant kicks it in the face, I don't think I'd do that. Kicking a raptor in the face, Doctor Grant, you have some f-ing balls. No, oh, I, I think kicking a raptor in the face seems like a really good way to lose a good foot, and I like my feet. You know, probably like the right one more than the left, but. I still wouldn't want to kick it in the face. And I guess they're going over the the room with the projector where they had this projection of a DNA sequence. And there's this awesome shot where the raptor has a DNA sequence projected over it. Uh, I thought that was really neat. Oh, snap. The other raptor figured out how to open doors and get out of the maintenance shed. I never saw that coming. Of course... The most iconic scene in the entire movie is that ending. The most exciting scenes in that movie, of course, everybody's going to talk about the the T-Rex chasing the Jeep. You know, the iconic scene where the water is shaking. You know, that whole tension was just exciting, you know, and still is today. And then, of course, the best scene, of course, at the end with the two raptors chasing the kids in the kitchen you know it's like a it's like a slasher movie but with dinosaurs 
Gran and the kids, they're cornered. There's two raptors coming right at them. And then right before one leaps in for the kill, at the last possible second, the T-Rex, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, comes in to save the day. And they end up being saved by the T-Rex, who shows up and shows them who's boss. Randomly at the last second, uh, snatches up one of the raptors, fights them both off, lets the kids escape, and then it roars triumphantly (laughs) after knocking down the T-Rex skeleton. Aw, shit, here's Rexy. She's the best. I love her. She's so cute. So, yeah, they fight the raptors, and then they're cornered by the raptors, and then T-Rex decides to be, you know, the villain turns to a good guy. The T-Rex has a redemption arc. And we get that awesome scene at the end when the, in the visitor center, the main hall, where the T-Rex just flings one of the raptors through the skeleton and then the, the banner falls and the T-Rex roars. And-, and it roars as a sign falls fluttering to the ground that says, when dinosaurs roam the earth. And it's just, it's perfect. Uh, it's fantastic. It's amazing imagery. The CG holds up like crazy is so good it's just such a good moment like as a story like uh, everything was kind of building to this moment but there's a massive massive plot hole right here how did this happen how did the t-rex get into that building first of all like the doors aren't big enough and it didn't smash the wall as far as i know but how did it sneak up on a grand the kids and b the raptors like they they have good senses right they would have seen it coming but not only that the t-rex is the loudest f-ing thing in the world like every time it takes a step the whole building shakes like <laughs> they literally like have like puddles of water like there's that scene with the glass of water and you see the ripples from the freaking uh, tectonic movement of this thing as it's just walking around. So you're saying this thing snuck in and tiptoed in. They didn't see that out of the corner of their eye. Like <laughs> there's also introduced the concept of a, a dinos Rex Machina, which is when a mechanical dinosaur comes out of nowhere to save everybody to end your movie. Yeah, if you think about it for like three seconds, it all falls apart, but it doesn't matter. This movie is so well constructed. It's so good that you just you're willing to suspend that disbelief. You're willing to let that little bit slide. It works. It totally works for the movie. It's great. (laughs) No complaints. No complaints. I just thought it was funny. If you can overlook the numerous continuity errors, which I do, it's a great film. That's a ton of fun. And we assume that Ian's fine that I don't know everyone else is okay what happened to all the ice cream is mostly what I'm worried about as Grant exits the building with everyone else and he jumps into the van with Richard Attenborough and they run they drive off to safety and he says to him I will not be endorsing your park you know by the end of the film you you just you can't help but you feel bad for John Hammond he honestly just wanted to give something to the world he wanted everyone to experience dinosaurs sorry dinosaurs and the whole thing fell apart and was destroyed in less than a day but grant you may not be endorsing the park but i 
Bill, who once worked on a 90s British TV drama with the superstar known as Gerard Butler, fully endorses this movie. They fly off in a helicopter. Now, Alan can be a dad. He's a dad now of these two kids. Him and Ellie. Ellie knows she sees and she goes, now I can have kids with this guy. He's 20 years older, but that's actually fine. It's actually fine. I don't care. No one should really care that much. They're not real people. They look out the window, and the last thing they see are, like, a bunch of storks flying? Because babies are on the way, <laughs> I think. I, I never looked at dinosaurs the same way again, because it was... You know, this is the guy who made uh, sharks scary on screen. And this guy, Mr. Spielberg, he made dinosaurs scary as well. And we're done with Jurassic Park, and then the best music that ever was on a movie plays you out. It was a fantastic, exciting movie. Overall, this is an amazing film. Overall, the original Jurassic Park absolutely holds up as one of the best movies of the 90s and is still in my top three movies of all time. Um, overall, I like this movie. I, I love the first half of this movie, and I, yeah, I'm okay on the second half of the movie. I will always love going back to this. The best sequence, I think, is is the T-Rex when she first breaks out of the paddock. It's just amazing. It really is a masterpiece. Oh, and, and, and the Batman film with Arnold Schwarzenegger. That movie is funny as shit. But yeah, these two are probably the greatest movies of all time. And you should everyone should go watch them, you know. <laughs> Jurassic Park, fantastic movie. Absolutely loved it. This was a great rewatch. Movies like these are rare these days. Not much surprising spectacle left in cinema anymore. We've seen it all by now. You can't get any better than the first Jurassic Park. So overall, this is a fantastic movie. I, I intended to watch like half an hour of it before I went to bed. Last night, I watched the whole f***ing thing. It was awesome! Oh, yes! Smother me in... Uh, 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 biological dinosaur goop stuff. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going this. Anyway. This is, I was surprised that, you know, some people don't like it because the story is a little thin. I mean, come on. It, it's about recreating dinosaurs, bringing dinosaurs back, okay? Scariest moment, as I remember, I think was the kitchen scene with the raptors because it was so close quarter and it seemed like you could not get away. Uh, one of the things that I have grown to think of more and more about Jurassic Park is that it would be a great horror film, like strictly horror, but they pull back from the horror so frequently. The, the score is very adventurous. Um, a lot of these scenes are very adventurous. You know, there's a lot of these magical moments that you would not normally have in a horror film. And I, I almost wish that it stuck more to horror, but granted that might not be, that might not have left a good impression on me as a child. But, you know, I, I think it would be cool to see a horror-specific Jurassic Park, but I do just love this interesting blend that Spielberg pulled off of adventure and horror. And no, the science isn't perfect. And no, not even the dinosaur information is perfect. You know, I, I, had, uh, I have a kid. I, have, I had a five-year-old boy, right? I've read every dinosaur book in existence. I know more about dinosaurs uh, than the people making this movie. Does that impact my viewing experience one bit? No. This movie's awesome. They made a T-Rex. T-Rex.
Two little side things I'd like to mention. One, I don't know why or where it originated, but I remember after the film came out, the rumor, at least in my area up here in, in New Hampshire, was that Michael Crichton played Ian Malcolm. Granted, that I, that's clearly not true. That's, that's Jeff Goldblum. But for a few years, I was under the impression that Michael Crichton was Jeff Goldblum, or vice versa, and, <laughs> and and I was always confused why Michael Crichton was not listed in the credits as as an actor. I I don't know where that came from, but I had multiple people tell me that, and I was stupid and I believed it because I was a kid. That the author of the book was like, ah, oh, I'm in, I'm in the movie, yeah. As far as like adaptations from the book to the screens go, from the books to the screen goes, uh, they did change a little bit. Both Tim and Lex are basically flip-flopped from the book as far as ages and personalities go. Uh, so it's a little strange to see them switched, but I think that might have had more to do with who they cast than anything else. I'm not sure. But it was also uh, the, the one interesting change that I thought was the, the lawyer whose name escapes me at the moment. And the book is actually quite capable, sticks around for quite a while, does some really cool stuff, and tries to act heroically. Whereas in the movie, he's just kind of like your scuzzy movie attorney. And, you know, I, I get why someone would maybe want to see the book version on screen, but for a movie where you're trying to keep it kind of concise and moving quickly, having him just be like some scumbag lawyer to drop a few lines of important dialogue and get eaten in a memorable way... It works perfectly. I mean, the, him getting eaten on the toilet by the T-Rex is one of the most memorable shots in the entire film that's full of memorable shots. So, you know, say what you will about some of the choices made as far as adaptations go, but I, I can't really think of a single one that hurts the film. There are a few things that I would have liked to have seen that were omitted from the book, uh, particularly the, the attack in the pterodactyl pen is very cool. Uh, leading up to that, of course, where Dr. Grant and the kids are on like a, a raft kind of thing or a canoe. I think it's a raft. And the T-Rex is chasing them and it, it wades into the water after them and starts swimming like a crocodile. You know, uh, arms and legs just hanging in the water and propelling itself with its tail. Uh, and Dr. Grant is just fascinated by what he's seeing. Like, I knew it. That's incredible. Blah, blah, blah. And the kids are like, shut the fuck up and paddle. Um, very cool stuff that they left out. There are some things that I'm glad they changed. Like in the book, for instance, Dr. Hammond is eaten by dinosaurs. Don't necessarily want to see, you know, the kind old grandpa guy, even if he is acting more like a mad scientist. But you can see the kind old grandpa still there. I mean, he, lo he loves his grandkids, at least. Um, you know, I don't want to see him get eaten necessarily, especially not in the way that he does in the book. It's pretty gory. The other thing that, um, <laughs> the other little story I'll tell is uh, I grew up in, a smallish town in New Hampshire, and we had feral cats that lived uh, right around our house, a, a lot of them. The night that we went and saw the the movie, we came home. My mother heard cats fighting outside, and they were making awful noises. And even though she knew it wasn't real, in her mind, she was thinking, oh my God, the raptors are outside because <laughs> the cats woke her up from a sleep and then she couldn't go back to bed because these feral cats were fighting outside and she thought it was the velociraptors from from the movie so um yeah that's that's how impactful this movie was and i'm not sure what i can say about the film 
that other people haven't already said within this very podcast. Jurassic Park is one of the all-time great films in American history. You're all talking about it. You're all doing fantastic. I have enjoyed this movie for many years, and I will rewatch all of them every so often when the mood strikes me. It is fun. It's scary. It's funny. It's got action. It's got heart. It's got drama. It's got annoying children. It's got murder. It's got an attorney being eaten on a toilet. What more could you possibly want? Okay, yeah, maybe if some of the Raptors had guns or something. But Jurassic Park 6 is coming, and it looks kind of stupid, so you never know. You never know. Dinosaurs in space. <laughs> Spielberg's name may not have the sheen on it that it used to, but this was made during his golden period. The book, I, I think, is still better than, than the movie, but this movie, it's amazing. And there's actually stuff from the book that will show up in the sequel that we're going to be talking about uh, upcoming soon, The Lost World. Um, yeah, overall, decent movie, starts great, drags ass a bit, comes kind of just the generic monstery kind of stuff, apart from the special effects, introduced a whole new, uh, way of making movies directly responsible for the existence of the Star Wars prequels. I think an argument could be made. I love this movie. It's, it's the best out of the entire series of Jurassic Park and Jurassic World uh, that I have, that in my opinion, but um, we'll see what other people think. You know, it, it, you know. I mean, today's audiences, they don't realize how how much of a, a great story that is. You know, the pacing is not the same as modern movies, and I, I feel like you know it kind of lacks the, the new the new Jurassic movies don't really have the same you know magic to them as that first movie. Unfortunately, the same can't be said of the sequels, as we'll get into. So I will always enjoy going back and watching Jurassic Park, and I will enjoy the others, even though they don't hold a candle to this one. Yeah, why the f*** would you breed raptors? I mean, even the T-Rex. Like, why would you breed a f***ing T-Rex? Like, I'm all down for the idea of Jurassic Park, but let's be honest, like, you know, we'll, we'll get to it in the next film. <laughs> like, I think the next film was a good idea. You know, I, I like the idea of what happens in the next film, but not the way it all un unravels. But in this film, yeah, if you're going to have a theme park of dinosaurs, just do all the vegetarian dinosaurs. Don't fucking breed raptors. Don't make T-Rexes, because it's bound to go south. Yeah? We've seen this. We've seen it. We know what happens. But I mean, it's not... Uh, like, I, went to, I went to a zoo the other day, like, and with my kids and like there, there's lions and stuff there which could eat me but they're not as big as a f***ing T-Rex <laughs> not not as jumpy and vicious as I imagine a fucking Velociraptor is so yeah I just think they should have used a bit more sense here while I've enjoyed each of the movies to varying degrees and they're not quite as bad as the Jaws sequels which we'll get to soon enough none of them have ever really been able to recapture the magic of the original Jurassic Park so you know I would I would uh, I would say anybody that is a fan and hasn't seen the first one should check it out. The first Jurassic Park is really a great movie. Thank you all for listening people. We'll have Jurassic Park 2 next. I've been Bill from many podcasts including including the Super Switch Club. Hey, which is a podcasters assemble style show. Yeah, if you like podcasters assemble but you want to have it in a computer game format, I've got the show for you, the Super Switch Club. Anyway people, this has been great. Uh, looking forward-ish to Jurassic Park 2. <laughs> like I said, I remember I liking the concept, but maybe not so much the film. And I think there's way too much Jeff Goldblum in it for my liking. 
Anyway, this is Frost signing off. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to give my thoughts on this awesome movie. Uh, and we'll see you next time on Podcasters Assemble. On our next episode of Jurassic Podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, an adaptation of Michael Crichton's The Lost World that really has balls if it calls itself an adaptation. The Lost World. So uh, until next time, podcasters, don't get eaten. Life uh, finds a way. Next time on Podcasters Assemble. Mommy, Daddy, I found something. A British family on a yacht cruise stumbled upon Site B. Now it's only a matter of time before this lost world is found and pillaged. Hopefully we've kept this island quarantined and contained, but I'm in shock about all this. Ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and then screaming. How was that? Go. As fast as you can. What is it? Mommy's very angry. You will believe a girl can kill a raptor with gymnastics. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, a symbol. Uh, to, to, to be continued. Yes. Podcasters Assemble is a production of the We Can Make This Work, Probably, podcast network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter and Instagram at Casters Assemble or joining our Discord page. Link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. Intro written by Eric Slater and Stephen White. Music by Deft Stroke Sound. Voiceover by Random Faceless Man in Front of a Microphone in a Basement. Goes by the first name Dave, last name Steele. This episode was edited by Eric Slater and Zach Derby. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to where you can find them all online. You can also help support this podcast by visiting patreon.com slash podcastersassemble. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at Probably Work for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com. 1993! Uh... Sing it together, you mean? Oh, f***ing trolls. Trolls in my head. Get out, trolls. Get out of my brain. I could talk about Jurassic Park ad nauseum, which I believe means at length. Or forever. <laughs> anyway. Oh, did I mention Samuel Jackson was in this movie? Oh, I don't think I did. <laughs> yeah, he's, his right arm steals the show. <laughs> oh, I love you, Samuel Jackson. I feel like I remember him prior to this film, but even looking over his filmography, nothing clicked. Basic Instinct, maybe? I know, I know. I wasn't old enough to watch Basic Instinct at the time it came out. I was only 12. But a curious 12-year-old. One with a desire to understand women and other matters. But we're getting off topic. Oh, no. Not the cow.
Oh, I forgot about this bit. Oh, I'm, I'm going to have to go vegetarian again. Oh, but right after I finish this uh, this bacon and sausage sandwich, I got myself a breakfast. <laughs> mm. Oh, man, these, these raptors look vicious. 60 miles per hour, too. F*** me. And they have laser intelligence. They, these things are just too scary. And the way they rip that cow to pieces. Oh, man, it, it's, enough, it's almost enough to make me go vegetarian. Mm, mm. Oh, man, I love sausage and bacon. Why does he say dinosaur? Is that is that a thing? Are there people in this world that say dinosaur? Where are you from? Who is this person? Greg Burson? Where are you from? Why did you say dinosaur? What what else did you do? Was that done on purpose? I don't know. But it stuck out in my brain for years. Whenever someone would say dinosaur, I would always immediately fly back to Mr. DNA. Dinosaur? Hey. Are these the kids from Jumanji? I think these are the same kids from Jumanji. And while we're at it, just goes to show that he had a gift early on. Go listen to the composition for the main titles for the John Wayne film, The Cowboys, and tell me that's not catchy. And I just brought it back around a second time because that movie is the one with Bruce Dern who shot John Wayne. And it has Laura Dern's father, Bruce Dern, scored by John Williams. Yeah. How about them connections? Hmm? Boom. Shoot her, do it! Shoot her! Shoot her right in the kisser! Oh, goodness. Shoot her. Shoot her, please. Quick, shoot her in the face. You're not wearing hockey pants. Just for Chris. Podcasters, don't get eaten. Or wait, is that... Is that Attack on Titan, the coordinate podcast? Oh, shit. I don't know. (laughs) You'll have to get used to Dr. Malcolm. He suffers from a deplorable excess of personality, especially for a mathematician. Chaotician. Chaotician, actually. Dinosaur. Dinosaurs. <laughs>